Hey, Cinemaniacs, welcome back to the Den of Sin. Uh, this is your uh, co-host, Devin, and I've got my fearless co-host, James, with me today. How you doing, James? I'm a fearless vampire hunter. Uh, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's been a crazy week for the United States, but a very interesting <laughs> times we're living in. I was going to say, we yeah. promised to come back if society didn't self-destruct, but uh, <laughs> I think we narrowed Every day's a gamble at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so far, uh, so good. Civil War Part Two. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, I'm doing good, man. Just uh, excited to talk movies. This is always my favorite favorite thing. So, yeah, me too. This is definitely a, a bright spot. We are concluding our examination of time travel movies, which is something that we had picked somewhat as a relief from exactly what's going on in the world right now. Because time travel movies, even the headier ones, tend to just be a little bit more fun. There was one fun fact before we get into the new crop of movies here. There was something I neglected to mention last week that tied three of the movies we talked about last week together in a very kind of head scratching way. And that is, uh, did you know that Back to the Future, Time After Time, and Time Rider, The Adventure of Lyle Swan, <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, unconnected to one another, chose November 5th to be the day that they travel back to uh, different years in each of them, but each one of them specifically, they travel back to November 5th. Uh, so I'm a little curious. Is there something that they're hiding from us or that's weird as hell, man. <laughs> right? <laughs> How specific. I, I might have to uh, see what I can do about demanding an answer to that. Uh, <laughs> well, don't, don't, you don't want to, I mean, if you know, don't, uh, I don't want to lose you, Devin. Don't, 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 uh, don't upset the Illuminati too much. <laughs> No, no, and I don't want to upset Robert Zemeckis either, but I, I'm very curious. Uh, those those writers, uh, Zemeckis and Gale did Back to the Future, and Michael Nesmith did Time Writer, and I believe Nicholas Meyer wrote Time After Time himself. So I, I would uh, think that maybe those people might be approachable on Twitter. Uh, I, I don't think this is a question they're asked very often, so let's maybe let's test the theory. Let's see if let's we try can it. Get, even just, get just one of them to answer. Did they do that? as a tribute to something else or what made them pick November 5th? Cause that's incredibly specific. <laughs> I know. And yeah, that's so, uh, and, and you're sure it's just those three time travel movies that date doesn't pop up in any others. Those are the only three that popped up on my radar. I, it could be that, uh, that this is a thing. They could be paying tribute to a book that I know nothing about. I, yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know, but all three very different styles of time travel movies too so i can't i can't imagine time rider is based off of it's paying homage to anything <laughs> right. like, maybe, uh, it, maybe yeah maybe it's some you know it's some you know hg lewis uh or hg hg lewis Herschel <laughs> <laughs> gordon lewis hg uh, wells uh tribute of some kind but speaking could, of hg wells though yeah speaking of hg wells uh we should definitely say something about george powell's famous uh, production of H.G. Wells' novel, The Time Machine, uh, which th there have been other versions of The Time Machine as well. But let's face it, George Powell's 1960 version is what people think of when you bring up The uh, the Time Machine. Did you grow up with this one, James, like I did? or I didn't grow up with it. They, did, they played it a lot on Channel 13 on the Sunday night movie or whatever, the, the Sunday whatever. Sunday matinee movie, whatever. It, it did pop up a lot during my childhood. And, and I do. <laughs> the only thing I can remember about it specifically is the Morlocks and the, 
the very distinct design of the Morlocks. A lot, it, most of the time, if I'm going to pay attention to anything, it's going to be the monsters, the mutants, or you know, you know, the the villains or the monsters or you know the freaks of the movie but um yeah i mean again i remember liking it as a kid but i've never read the the herschel gordon i haven't seen the herschel gordon lewis again jesus christ <laughs> it's <laughs> the, the godfather the, of gore we're talking about the it, godfather it, of time travel exactly but yeah i mean i've never read any hg wells stories so i'm not you know i'm by no means an expert i know the basic overall you know plot of the time machine but i can't recall too much about it of course uh, I read a lot of H.G. Lewis growing up, but... You know, H.G. Lewis too? I did it to you. I, I, did, uh, you cursed me. You cursed me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I started watching H.G. Lewis movies when I was maybe in middle school, Sorry. but when I was younger <laughs> than that and I, I was not seeking out Blood Feast and Wizard of Gore, uh, <laughs> I was seeking out uh, fun sort of time travel stories and science fiction stories, and I, I did follow H.G. Wells quite a bit. In fact, H.G. Uh, Wells is in a very small way, a character in a script that I've written before. So, which is actually about Orson Welles, but everyone knows that Orson Welles and HG Wells did cross paths rather famously, uh, not for the time machine, but for war of the worlds. But most of my memories of reading those books have honestly kind of gone the way of the summer breeze itself. You know, I, I don't remember very much. I remember the movie more than I remember the book of, uh, the time machine. Uh, I knew you would mention the Morlocks though, because, uh, you may not know this, but the entire cast of Morlocks was uh, professional wrestlers. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't know that specifically, but if you've seen the movie, they they look they're all their builds and stuff. They needed brawny, <laughs> beefy dudes. So, yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, this this was uh, kind of pre Hulk Hogan, any of those guys, and more like uh, toward Johnson's age when wrestlers were less jacked and more just bulky. Yeah, just be like beefy. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing is like dudes, even like the Bruno San Martinos and stuff. He was pretty well built, not necessarily the definite like what a weird tangent, but they weren't like the <laughs> bodybuilder looking guys. They're more like the powerful, athletic looking guys. Like the and they had like these huge, you know, manly, burly frames, whatever. Which uh, they were a lot of them were legitimate college athletes and stuff. A lot of them were just fat guys too. I mean, there's tons of those. The uh, <laughs> haystacks calhouns of the world but yeah a lot of them though but again you, you're tor johnson you're swedish angels you're sort of just beefy dudes yeah yeah and you can tell if you uh ever do get a chance to see the movie again and and i recommend it because stylistically it the story is what the story is it's actually a very simple story and there's not really anything too deep to it but uh the visual style that george powell brings to it uh, it's really interesting. And then when you get to the Morlocks, uh, of course, they're all kind of doing slowed down wrestling moves. So if you watch yeah. it again, <laughs> be looking around for uh, see, see if you can spot the actual moves that were popular back then. <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll write down every single one I know. <laughs> it's, I want a list. Dude. But there's uh, there's other angles to the time travel mythology or I guess it's not a mythology, but there's other time travel type stories. The the time machine is about the time travel itself uh but there's actually a lot of love stories that are made out of time travel stories i don't know if you have any particular favorites there's a, a number of them that just really weren't my cup of tea so to speak things like forever young with mel gibson and, and jamie lee curtis was one of them uh i mean there's yeah it's funny because about kind of doing a little bit of research i was like oh yeah i forgot this was sort of there is like a lot of um like i saw it, it wasn't a terrible movie, but the movie when we first met with um, 
Adam Devine from uh, from Workaholics, who who I am weirdly a fan of. Uh, I don't, you know, he's there's something about him. He's very frat boy, frat bro, douche bro kind of dude. But that, but he's still fun. I think he's legitimately funny. But it was actually a pretty sweet little movie. It was a pretty little heartwarming movie. The time travel aspect suits romance movies so well because so much of what is the heartache of like true romances like loves lost and so missed opportunities you know meet cutes all those sort of things or there's an element of being able to sort of go back and fix that or oh if only I had a time machine i wouldn't make that mistake again and yeah. that sort of you know, falls really deeply into you know what makes romance films appealing or what makes those kind of stories work for people i, I know there's one you really want to talk about specifically um <laughs> all right well we'll go ahead and bring that one up then uh, <laughs> uh, I will say though, real quick before yes. you go on, this was the one movie because I have seen it. My mom was a fan of this movie. I feel like I say that a lot in this podcast. My mom was a fan of the movie, but again, my mom had a huge uh, impact on me, especially cinematically, which yeah. is very odd if you know my taste in movies. But um, I also know your mother, big... so it makes sense yes. to me, and I, I think uh, our listeners enjoy it. I I like it's knowing. Just, I, and the thing is, to me, fan. it's like it's the one thing. Like everybody sort of connects with people in a different way, and for me, it was. It, it was the thing where my, I just unspoken. I just always thought my mom had really great taste as a kid. Like if she liked something, it was usually something I liked too, but yeah, she was a big fan of romance movies and, uh, and, and uh, really well done movies. And she was particularly a fan of this. And she, she was actually a fan of the cast, which I'll let you sort of talk about. Okay. Well, the film is somewhere in time, which I'm, I'm sure is not a surprise to most of our listeners that this would be my favorite <laughs> romance story going back and rewatching it. And I've rewatched it several times. The story's not really particularly deep. It's a rather straightforward sort of love story. Oftentimes I've thought of like, why exactly is this my favorite romance movie <laughs> considering there's not so much to it, but I think a lot of it has to do with the performances. You've got Christopher Reeve as the uh, lead and Jane Seymour, who is a, a, a fantastic actress who at first kind of got, sort of shoehorned as a bond girl. And then she had Dr. Quinn. And I, I really don't think that she's, even though she has a cult following, I don't think that she's ever been given the, the role that really, yeah, that, that brought her the appreciation that she deserves. Uh, you could argue maybe that this is it. It's an interesting time travel story because it does not involve a time machine at all. And it doesn't involve spells or curses or any kind of such thing. There's no potion. It's all done in the mind. And I think maybe that's why, it stuck in my mind when I was young was because, well, if, if time travel really exists, this is maybe the most approachable way to imagine that it could happen for one of us. It's a sort of self-hypnosis. For anyone that hasn't seen the film, Christopher Reeve plays Richard Collier. He's a playwright. And at his opening night of his first major play, an old woman approaches him backstage while they're all celebrating uh, with a very young William H. Macy, by the way. Uh, it was his first film. And if you blink, you'll miss him. Uh, but this old woman approaches Christopher Reeve and hands him a pocket watch and says the words, come back to me. And then she just walks away and everyone's kind of stunned and whatever, but they get back to their partying. It's just one of those moments. And uh, we, we jump forward just a couple of years in the future. And he is now a successful playwright uh, with a career out of it. And he's kind of hit that sort of sophomore slump where he's losing his heat fast and he decides to take a long weekend and just kind of drive off and see where he ends up. And he ends up on Micmac Island. 
uh, which is a real place, and the Grand Hotel, which is also a real place. They hold conventions for somewhere in time there. Uh, interesting enough, you can't actually drive cars there, so they had to break their own rules. I think it's the only time Nicomac Island has ever broken the rule of allowing travel Driving. by car. Yeah. And and if you watch it, it's not used much. I mean, you basically see Christopher Reeve driving up to the uh, front of the hotel and that's, there's not much else in it involving cars. Uh, but as Christopher Reeve arrives at the hotel, he gets his room, he kind of gets his bearings and he goes into like a hall of history, you know, a little museum for the hotel. And he sees a picture on the wall of this beautiful actress who had performed there in 1912. And he falls in love with the picture. He becomes obsessed uh, starts studying everything he can find about this actress whose name is Elise McKenna. And finally he finds the last photograph ever taken of her. And lo and behold, it's the woman who came up to him backstage at his first play and gave him the watch and said, come back to me. So now he's super obsessed. And uh, of course, you know, movie magic, uh, these kind of the way these kinds of stories go. Of course he had a college professor who had once claimed to have gone back in time himself using this particular method. So he goes and he gets the information from that college professor who tells him to be careful and tells him how exhausting it is and how he only made it back to, I think it was the era of the Spanish Inquisition or something. <laughs> uh, and he was only there for seconds and and then it went away. So Collier becomes obsessed with going back to the hotel and using the hotel itself kind of as his time device since the t hotel existed in the time he's traveling to 1912. And he goes back and he finds her and then it's a struggle. They instantly have chemistry uh, once Christopher Reeve is back in 1912, but uh, Christopher Plummer plays Jane Seymour's manager and who is dead set against these two ever ending up together. And so once he's <laughs> actually gotten past the hurdle of time travel, now he's got a, a manager to deal with. And I, I don't want to give away the ending, uh, except to say that it's one of the more impactful parts of the film, but it, it had a, a big influence on me as a kid. And it also, I think being really young when I saw it, it I, I remember being sick home from elementary school and uh, it was on TV. And what caught my attention was that it was Superman. And I think it was one of the first movies that kind of showed me that the superhero could also be a romantic lead and that it, as an acting choice, you don't always have to play the uh, the guy that can fly. And, and I, I think that was a big deal to me as a kid in understanding what actors do. Yeah, and I feel like, I mean, it, we, we could really at some point really dive into not just specifically how playing Superman affected Christopher Reeves' career. Christopher Reeves is a fantastic actor. I feel like he had such a humanity to him. He had such a gentle warmth to it, like a genuine warmth to him uh, that came across in his roles, not just as Superman, but across his career that... But I feel like in the same way that Adam West was typecast as Batman, the same way that William Shatner was typecast as Captain Kirk to a certain degree, there was a time where you played these big iconic roles and you sort of, especially if they were a genre, you couldn't really break out of it. And I do think, thankfully, in today's world, that's not necessarily an issue anymore. I think you can go from being like the star of a temple franchise superhero movie to having a career as a you know, more diverse career as an actor. But I feel like Chris Reeve was sort of pigeonholed as Superman when he definitely, and you know, you and I, you know, very adamant about him being the most perfect super, cinematic Superman of all time. Perfect. He's iconic in that character. And so rightfully, so he should go down in history as being remembered as the best Superman. But I feel like it did hurt his career and he didn't really get the, sh the fair shake he could have. But that is an unfortunate part of Hollywood, especially in the past where if people saw you as this iconic character, 
oftentimes those actors struggled with being, you know, typecast and trying to break out of that. He's a very, he was a very likable star. I feel bad that he didn't have the career maybe that he should have or deserved to have. Um, Yeah. But it's a great movie. Thank goodness we got what we got though. I mean, the, uh, yeah, the first couple super supermans were fantastic. The last couple of supermans are at least fun somewhere in time, death trap. There's enough Christopher Reeve out there to have a full appreciation of the man. And I'm, I'm happy for that. And I will say somewhere in time was my, my gateway to that, to, to appreciating him as a kid and, and breaking the stereotype in my own mind, which is really what ha- the way to beat stereotyping. It's got to be a 50, 50. The audience has to meet that actor uh, halfway. You got to be able to crack your own mind to say like, I can see that person doing that. Yeah. And uh, I hope other people had similar experiences with somewhere in time, kind of understanding like, Oh, I get it. These are actors and he really doesn't fly. And, <laughs> and uh, and that's not all he's capable of doing. He's just so heartbreaking in this. And he, well, he's so eager at first. And then when he gets there and it's not exactly how he wanted, you really, you run through the gamut of emotions with him. It, his part yeah. in particular in that film is extremely emotional and you, he's inviting you to go along on that ride with him. And he really does carry you. Uh, and it's also, it doesn't hurt that it's based on a short story by Richard Matheson, who is one of the greatest yeah. science fiction writers of all time. So one of the most influential writers of all time. And uh, most contemporary, you know, film fans are, I mean, most people don't know his influence, the things that he wrote that, you know, went on to influence pop culture in general, but specifically cinema, the, you know, 17 different remakes of different novels he's written and, and stories he's written. Um, one romantic comedy or one romantic science fiction-y, time travel movie that I am a huge fan of uh, is Woody Allen's uh, Midnight in Paris. Um, oh, yes. I love that one. We've talked in this podcast before that, yes, he's, a, you know, he's he's not the most likable guy um, as a human being. At some point, you have to separate the art from the artist. I can understand people even having criticisms of his work because there are legitimate criticisms that he sort of, he goes with the same well thematically a lot. Um, that he writes himself in all of his movies. But the thing is, regardless of all of those criticisms being, you know, having some validity, he's such an artist and such of a singular mind that he still makes really fun, compelling, interesting, witty, entertaining even movies. Um, Midnight in Paris is a perfect example. Yes, it's another nebbish. I mean, all these characters are basically iterations of Woody Allen. We all know that. But this one is yeah. just so, the it's, it's so charming. And I actually think even though like a lot of times he'll cast guys who sort of have the same aura as him, as far as like this kind of look with midnight in Paris, I feel like Owen Wilson definitely doesn't nothing about Owen Wilson normally reminds me of Woody Allen, but he played to Owen Wilson's strength. I think it's one of my favorite Owen Wilson performances and Owen Wilson really captured what the writing of Woody Allen, but it's such a great premise of you think you're such a fan of like bygone eras. You romanticize bygone eras I'm a big fan of nostalgia and anachronistic things like, you know, vinyl records and like, I get all of that stuff. You know, there's a sense of romance to that idea that I, you know, Oh, I wish I could live in, you know, the roaring twenties or whatever. And what the film, you know, is basically saying is like, that's just live, like be happy to like, you know, live in your contemporary society. And which is a funny point that Woody Allen makes it because you sort of see Woody Allen is this sort of, you know, and is a old timey, uh, jazz band and yeah it's a very charming movie with a great cast with really great performances sort of popping through different eras of time and meeting famous people famous you know artists and writers and stuff and and Owen Wilson sort of interacting with them and stuff and 
it's very charming. And one thing is too, like, you know, he, at one point, obviously Woody Allen had his, his love affair with New York, you know, obviously most of his beloved movies are basically are all love letters to New York, but in the latter half of his career, he changed that to, to Paris. And one thing that Woody Allen has been able to do, even with the, you know, some of the greatest movies ever made are, you know, there's a lot of brilliant French films, but Woody Allen captures this sort of, quiet beauty to Paris that even other French films I don't think have been able to replicate or still capture just a certain facet of like a quiet Paris night or whatever but um so there's a romance to the movie anyway it just is like if you're just the, the cinematography locations that he films in it's, it's just it's a very charming movie it, you know it gets a lot of hate nowadays because it's just anything with Woody Allen gets there's a hyper Again, I don't want to get, we're not going to get into the politics of Woody Allen, who he is, but people just want to hate on him, you know, and again, I, w- I wouldn't ever argue that you have to be a Woody Allen fan, but I mean, separating the artist from the art, the art from the artist, I feel like, you know, it, it, when Midnight Paris is a, I actually probably think it's the last truly brilliant Woody Allen movie, and I really like Woody Allen, like I, even his movies that I feel like are mediocre are still better than 95% of other yeah. movies I'll see in the same given year. So agreed. And he was a huge influence on my writing style as well. It's the whole scandal around Woody Allen. It's I, I hate for it to be a deal breaker on anything. I, I, if somebody doesn't like Woody Allen movies, I totally get it. I'm not going to just tell me you don't like Woody Allen movies and I'll stop talking about them. But <laughs> to, yeah. to, to ignore the fact that I was so incredibly influenced by his particular style uh, in terms of my own writing. I, I can't talk about my own writing without basically I would just have to steal everything from Woody Allen and not give him credit uh, in order to continue <laughs> being a writer. Uh, but Midnight in Paris, I, I agree with you. I think it may be his last masterpiece. It's the last one that I really loved and I haven't seen a lot of his later stuff just because partly because it does leave a bad taste in my mouth, but I'm able to return to the stuff that I'd seen before because I can latch that onto memories of seeing it uh, before. Uh, and he that might one be in particular, a filmmaker who I've literally seen every, and he's, a prolific filmmaker. I think I've seen everything he's ever done, <clears throat> even um, Match Point. I like Match Point. I thought Match yeah, Point. Yeah, Match Point. Really Match Point. Match Point is great, and I feel like it's a lot of people like at the time were sort of surprised that he still had it in him. But I feel like it's like he's done movie. Like he'll do a like a funny, witty, dialogue heavy movie, and then he'll do sort of an like a more mature intrigue laden more dramatic like a hannon or sisters type of movie and i think he does both brilliantly and i think he's consistently do that but he's just done them so much that you sort of take for granted i do think that the his weakest one for me overall which was weird because it was starring larry david who is probably the most truly Uh, woody allen type guy to ever you know step foot into that type of role uh it just wasn't a great cast too just it didn't I was really like, disappointed. That one's called whatever works. I was very disappointed yeah. with that because of you know, that same sort of thing. Like, Oh my God, Larry David doing Woody Allen. How can this fail? It, I think perfect. it was, yeah, right? I think it was too much of whatever it is. Uh, whatever it is that we liked about those two personalities coming together was exactly what made it not work. Most likely uh, not that they have conflicting styles per se. Although, you know, Larry David is just louder as a personality. They're they're definitely different people. Like they're like their vibe is different, but the ultimately the overthinking the difference between Larry David as a persona, not the person, because obviously he's not the characters he plays. But Larry David characters project outward, 
and Woody Woody Allen projects inward. His yeah. Woody Allen is all about like uh, I suck, nobody likes me. Uh, you know, he's very neurotic and very like self deprecating. Where Larry David is just he thinks everybody else is an idiot, and how come you know? <laughs> but I th- I thought that dichotomy was interesting. Do you happen to know how long Midnight in Paris was kicking around as a screenplay in Hollywood? I I mean I didn't before you, but I can now. I'm going to hazard a guess and say you know, thirty years, but. Well, let's. Uh, can you guess what actor called Woody Allen personally because he wanted to play a part in this movie? But in particular, he wanted to play the lead. <laughs> I'm setting you up because you're probably not going to guess it. But it it does indicate. Not, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'll just pull randomly and I'll say uh, I don't know. It's, uh, uh, I can't think. I I have not. I'm trying to think of something witty, and I I did, don't have anything. This script was kicking around so long before Woody Allen actually shot it that Cary Grant wanted to play the lead. I almost <laughs> went something that old as a joke, but oh, wow. <laughs> Cary Grant apparently really wanted to work with Woody Allen and called him and asked to play the lead in Midnight in Paris. So I don't know exactly. I mean, Woody Allen was a, a mover and a shaker in terms of getting movies done. So I don't know what held up that script for that many decades. But that's how far, and and I'm sure that the that's script that Cary Grant read was extraordinarily different from the script that was finally uh, produced. But um, yeah, it, I I just thought that was interesting, and and I've been kind of exploring Cary Grant lately. He's someone that I've always appreciated, and I, I've missed. I've seen a lot of the biggies, but I've list, I missed a lot of the in between stuff, and I'm kind of going back and checking that out. That's how I discovered this fun fact to begin with. So I just wanted to get that in there. Uh, what, what's another one that, um, that's meant something to you, James, either positive or negative. Well, so there are two time travel movies that sort of have a romance element to it that people love, uh, that they're diehard fans of. And two, I am, one's one of the worst, most infuriating movies I've ever seen in the theater. I have no idea what you're going to say right now. I'm actually kind of excited. The first is Donnie Darko. I will say. Ah. I don't hate Donnie Darko. My uh, weirdly for the listeners, I have a twin brother uh, who actually has a tattoo of this movie. He's such a fan of it at the time. I feel like it is a movie that is interesting. Definitely has its strong points. It definitely has things about it that are interesting. I think the soundtrack is great. Um, I think uh, there's definitely strong elements, but I do think if sort of, if you investigate too long onto it, it does sort of fall apart and does sort of, collapsed in on its own logic um i can sort of also say richard kelly's career definitely has sort of proven me right as far as <laughs> hasn't rent really done anything really of substance that sort of caught on it is a cult classic again there is things about it i like but the one i truly despise uh from a director who i find we'll say polarizing at best is uh the fountain now it was well known that he was making that darren aronofsky was making the fountain I did. I don't know if I saw it with you, but it was definitely a movie that we were all like super excited to see when it was coming out. Um, I had much... no feelings for it when it came out. I had like zero interest, so it couldn't have been with me. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is you were uh, you're one of the smart ones. Um, <laughs> okay, look, Darren Aronofsky is an interesting filmmaker. He does make movies that are at least interesting. Um, and yeah, it, some it, of people... them are amongst my favorites of the last ten years. But some, yeah, of, I mean, them, he, like I said, some of them, some of them, exactly. His his films have a tendency to sort of aim for the stars. Like he really wants to do something, you know, have some out, like a huge statement about life or he has, he has a lot of ambi- His films are very ambitious, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes he, it works and sometimes they don't. 
and his films are super polarizing. Mother, for instance, people either loved or hated it. I personally love it. Once yeah. you find out sort of what it's about, it becomes almost like, wow, I can't believe I, I didn't think about this. Unless you go into knowing sort of what it's a reference to and what it's an allegory to. Um, once you learn it, you're like, oh shit, yeah, that makes total sense. But it's a yeah. brilliantly we, obtuse film. But again, we've got to come the, up with a reason to talk about Mother sometime because I would love to <laughs> to go into that one a little bit further. I don't think the place is here, but no, no. But let's talk about the fountain. The fountain was supposed to be, you know, he had done Requiem for Dream. Like he had, he he was making movies people were very excited about. So I think the problem with this is that maybe it was also a case of heightened expectations like he wasn't gonna but look it's just a bad movie. it's just it's slow it's boring it's style over substance people talk shit on and i'm not even going to try to defend it as a movie but people talk about um malik's was a tree of life tree of life right yeah as far as how self-indulgent that movie is uh how it's like just a fucking you know jerk fest i don't I feel mind like self-indulgence the, that's what art is in so many ways well, I, I, it's funny this is a whole topic we could also talk about because I also don't believe as an artist, you have to be relatively up your own ass. If you really want to say something of value, like I feel like you have to really trust yourself and really want to explore your own ideas. Like, but it just, either you take a gamble with that and either it works or it doesn't. Um, The fountain, it did not work. No, it was just trying to be so, and the thing is that a great cast, but it just, I remember coming out of the theater and I'll, some people were like, oh, this is the most brilliant movie I ever saw. And I was like, that movie's fucking dog shit. It's tr- it's like, it's trying so hard to be this like epic grand statements about love. And, and it's like, no, man, the movie's fucking, it's, <laughs> it's, it missed the mark huge, but it's become one of those movies that's super polarizing where people either love it or they hate it, which I feel like if you go through his whole filmography is sort of what he's known for. Like people either love him or they fucking hate him. So I can take him or leave him. I love the wrestler, but there's no chance I'm ever going to watch Noah. Yeah, say exactly. You know, perfect. I I can't really champion him because uh, so much of his stuff. I mean, with with a a lot of filmmakers, like I would have said at one point, Woody Allen was like this. I I don't love every Woody Allen movie, but I do tend to find something about each one of them. Uh, But there's always an excitement going in of like, okay, is this going to be one of the great ones? Aronofsky, for whatever reason, I'll go see if it, it interests me. But if I, I'm not even going to give Noah a chance, I'm not going to, I just already know it, uh, it has nothing to serve me. Uh, another yeah. filmmaker who's like that. And we've discussed him before and I'm, I'm actually going somewhere with this. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're talking about time travel. So, and we're talking about from 2020 uh, people are going to want to know what we think about tenant. And I'm going to tell you right now, I did not see Christopher Nolan's tenant. I don't intend to watch Christopher Nolan's tenant. It's not out of any kind of protest. It's just, I got other stuff to watch that I know I'm going to like more. And I don't have like that particular form of self-indulgence. It's going to take two and a half hours of my time to see what he thinks a time travel secret agent movie looks like. Uh, I don't care if the performances are good. I'm just not going to get into it. Uh, so anyone waiting for a review of Tenant? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and it's funny because I feel like we're the only two. Christopher Nolan's like he's basically our demographics like favorite. Like guys our age, white dudes at our age range, like fucking worship that guy. Yeah. And you and I, I feel are like two of the lone <laughs> dissenting voices that he makes very flawed films that people just fucking latch onto as you know as these brilliant statements, and they're usually mediocre at best i mean there's things he's great at and he's a very competent filmmaker as a he is i wouldn't say he's an artist but he is an artisan like he knows how to make a movie this he has the skills to make a very 
good looking movie. You know, he knows how to make you know big budget films at work. But at the end of the day, like I don't, I never connect with them. I don't. I feel like they're essentially soulless. Sometimes I feel like, like I said, they're flawed. And let's not go there. But either way, I agree with you. I yeah. I was going to bring up. I was going to ask you if you were going to see it. I haven't seen it. I don't know if I will never see it. I just. I'm in no rush to see Tenet. It, I mean, it's also, unlikely. It's unlikely I will see it. If somebody ties me down and says, you've really got, you're so wrong about Tenant," and and it happens to be someone who has a track record of movie choices I agree with, I, I might sit down. But I, I will tell you, Tenant. speaking of self-indulgence, Tenant took it to a whole never, another level. And I'm not going to get too far into this because it's not what our podcast is about. But Whenever I think of Christopher Nolan from here on out, I'm going to think about this guy being the artist who was so self-indulgent that in 2020, he figured that it was worth losing your life over seeing his movie theatrical. Right. Uh, We are the same. I get the push for theatrical. I I actually hate what Warner Brothers did with HBO Max, where their entire slate next year is going to be released directly to the servers instead of the theaters. So I, I understand a lot of Christopher Nolan's arguments about theatrical release, but to push theatrical release on your movie, because your movie is so important that it can't wait another year to be seen uh, when everybody else was pushing back and pushing back and, and putting things on the back burner. And there's still several major tent poles that have not been released as of this time yep. in early January, 2021. And Christopher Nolan's tenant is going to be known forever as the flop of 2020, uh, even yep. though it made more money than Anything I would ever expect that I would make would ever make. Uh, I made something like $300 million, but uh, good. I'm glad it tanked because he was pushing it at the wrong time in the summer of 2020 saying, no, you should go see my movie this way. And uh, he's he's kind of an arrogant. Put it nicely. Um, Fuck you. Yeah, for real. Uh, But (laughs) with all that said, there was a movie that involved time travel that came out in 2020 that I did rent with my family and watch at home and pay the $20 premium, which is totally justifiable because for God's sakes, uh, the people that make movies do need to make money. So no brand new movies probably shouldn't be free or part of a subscription service. They, there should be a cover charge for movies uh, so that people can get paid. Uh, but that movie was Bill and Ted face the music, which I thought was a much better time travel movie than the unseen tenant. Uh, <laughs> did you get a chance to see Bill and Ted face the music? No, um, I will say Bill and Ted's the original Bill and Ted's a classic. I have personal uh, animosity towards Bill and Ted's uh, bogus journey because of uh, a childhood trauma that's related to that movie that I won't get into. Oh, no, um, but they're great movies and they're very fun. And I was very, very much looking forward to it. Um, I will say uh, what has kept me from seeing it so far uh, and paying the, the money is that most of the reviews I heard were not, uh, oh, you need to rent this. Where Oh, it was pretty good. So I feel like uh i'm not gonna you know and again i do feel like as much as i love those guys and as a child of the the 80s and 90s like of course i i you know i i want to support uh but at the same time like was it too long to wait for a sequel to bill and ted's yes uh and then also <laughs> you know most of the people i saw that it wasn't exactly passionate glowing reviews it was mainly like hey it's fun like so well, i figured go back I'll and look at the reviews for the first one I, that's the thing like I, i'm not saying that it's a brilliant movie uh i i've never even uh growing up i enjoyed bill and ted i liked it it was never one like i didn't watch the cartoons or any of that but apparently nobody did because those got uh th- that and the tv <laughs> show got 86 pretty quickly 
the reason why I don't think I got all that into Bill and Ted and when it was brand new is because I actually saw it at the drive-in in a double feature with UHF. And that's a fantastic double feature at the drive-in UHF and Bill yes, and Ted's is. excellent adventure. But I will fully confess UHF in my 10 year old brain blew the other one away by so far. When I left the theater, I had nothing to say about Bill and Ted because I was still wanting to talk about UHF. So <laughs> growing up, that really kind of took its place uh, while everyone else was talking about Bill and Ted. I'm like, yeah, but did anybody see UHF? And of course, time has shown UHF was was uh, something of a notorious disappointment for Weird Al and, and Jay Levy, the director. In terms of its box office, they're very proud of the film itself. I've, I've been very lucky. I've gotten to talk to both men. Uh, I got to go to each of their houses, as a matter of fact. I've been very lucky to, to get to meet many of the people involved in UHF. And that still holds a, a special place in my heart. And I think that it, it eclipsed Bill and Ted. But I was there. I was, I was there in the 80s. I know how big it was. And I went and saw the sequel. And I, I watched the new one because... I felt like it was a good relief in the summer just to like sit back and watch something like this. And absolutely to all of the negative reviews, I really, I do have to say, and I've said this about other things too. go back and watch the original again and tell me how much this falls short of it, because your memory is glossing over a lot of the glaring problems with the originals. And if anything, face the music is the better movie, but uh, the first one is more enjoyable and, and more forgivable of its, uh, shortcomings i claim that all of them are very watchable very enjoyable and if you want to call them a masterpiece then then that speaks to your taste and 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 people can have fun (laughs) with that but don't ever take it so seriously well and that's the thing i feel like as somebody who admittedly has rose tinted glasses due to nostalgia reasons and, and loving movies like passionately loving movies that upon a revisitation may not hold up quite the same. It's like, I can never begrudge anybody their, you know, sort of romanticized version of what it is film cartoon, whatever, because they loved it in their childhood. I, I would be the biggest hypocrite. But one thing I do feel like though, is especially at that time, this was the same time of like things like Beavis and Butthead. I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Polly Shore and the uh, Encino man, the late eighties into the early nineties where movies were fucking where, like characters were meant to be dumb, but they were sweet, dumb. They were very yeah. like, bro. Like, and it's kind of hard, especially now in our modern society as we, everything is so fucking pessimistic and everything is so there's sarcasm seeps out of everything. Seeing sincere characters who are just dumb, sincere, well-meaning morons. Like there is yes. something comforting about that. Uh, I think very well more put. Morons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What happened to the well-meaning morons? Um, the, the ones with you know bad head, good heart. Uh, <laughs> That's right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill and Ted were definitely that. You know, the original idea. First off, it was originally going to be Bill and Ted and Bob. Uh, it was based on a stand-up routine uh, that these guys did. And uh, when it came time to make the movie, Bob didn't want to make the movie, so it became Bill and Ted. Uh, it, it, this wasn't. I should point out, this was not a stand-up routine by Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. This is uh, <laughs> by the writers of Bill and Ted, uh, who created the characters and then cast actually perfect actors for it. Perfect. And um, that Keanu Reeves says someday on his gravestone, it will say, uh, here lies Keanu Reeves, he was Ted. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's Real perfectly quick, cast. One of my favorite clips recently uh, you know, as the entire world has refallen in love with Keanu Reeves over the years, there's this really cute little, you know, it's like a press junket thing. And he's like, 
the guy, he's like a guy in his 20s. He's like, so let you know, obviously you're super well known. Do you have any particular memories of uh playing Bill? And Keanu Reeves like doesn't hesitate to be like, uh, I played Ted. And the guy's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. He's like, dude, you lost all of your nerd credit. He's like, go be gone. Like you like, and he gives this guy a hard time, and it's so fucking funny and very cute. And, and again, sort of shows how likable Keanu Reeves is because he just He's obviously just having fun with this guy and like, uh, it's so sweet. Anyway, sorry. I had to say this story. It's cause I, I know it, it is sweet. just a few weeks ago. And it's just so sweet. I, I love it. I love losing your nerd cred. And he did That's That's, you can't make that mistake. And, and I, I have to say they, they do provide a, a pretty good counterpoint to doc and Marty, the other famous time travelers of a similar era, the super genius first versus the, uh, class dunces is kind of a, an interesting dichotomy. And I think that's the only way it really was going to work anyways. But Alex Winters actually said that he gets letters from all sorts of school teachers. And he says the ones he gets from the history teachers praise him and uh, uh, claim that he taught his kids how to uh, enjoy history. And the other half are from English teachers who curse him for uh, <laughs> creating a, <laughs> uh, a whole generation of misspellers uh, yeah of, of uh, butchers of the english language and <laughs> <laughs> and the original bill and ted just to to loop that back together real quick um i thought this was kind of funny because uh originally they were supposed to go through time causing all of the major catastrophes like they were supposed to go back and i could see that yeah cause the titanic to crash into the iceberg and and cause the hindenburg to uh explode uh, i'm so glad they didn't go down that route uh same that would have taken away some of the uh, the good heart part of it, even if they, if they didn't intend to do it. They needed to not. That sounds like a Mel Brooks kind of type of movie, and yeah. like I like the fact that like you nailed it. Like you know, it's like two dum dums who just happen to like pull through at the end, and you know, right? And and they kind of friends just, with all these, and they had to cast probably the smartest comedian of the time to be their their doc, which Brown, is like so was waiting for you to bring up, you know, yeah, George like, Carlin as Rufus. Yeah, I mean, goddamn, rest in peace. Like sorely missed in of, the third one too. That is probably the biggest. Uh, his his daughter is in it, but but they don't. I heard. I, I remember when they were doing it. I thought there was a rumor that they were going to do like you know like CGI Rufus, but they don't do that, right? No, they they do it, uh, but they don't do it onto like an actor's face. It's like a CGI image of Rufus, but uh, it's it's not meant to be Rufus alive. It's meant to be like the I, I can't remember the oh, exact okay. details, but it's more along the lines of. Oh, I remember. Like they're seeing the hologram of him. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's not meant to be something that they can interact with and that you didn't have anybody doing a Carlin impression. So they, they didn't, they didn't do that. They did. They got his daughter to appear in it. And that was, the movie doesn't go by without mentioning Rufus, but Rufus doesn't appear. How could you? I mean, yeah, you could. Yeah. That was, I think going in and even in, uh, 1989 seeing it at the drive-in he was the only recognizable face to me it was oh that's that comedian that my parents have records of that i'm not allowed to listen to <laughs> uh, <laughs> although i got my hands on him anyways uh sorry dad i've been listening to your richard Pryor records since i was, I was uh, say, same, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but i guess this is probably a, a decent enough time to bring up some uh some is it a time travel movie question Let's do it. Let's uh, let's get into this this uh, this area of the topic. Well, you've already mentioned two of them. One was going to be Encino Man because uh, it, it does actually follow time travel rules, where the you know, Brendan Fraser's character is a fish out of water and and all of that. But it never really quite feels like a time travel movie. What what do you think? Is Encino Man a 
it's definitely Rip Van Winkle. I mean, that's that's one of the most you know. It's literally caveman gets dethawed. Now he's a caveman. I mean, it's not a. It's not. A, I don't know. It's a fun. It's one of the. Yeah. It's <laughs> one of the stupidest fun movies ever. Uh, also, growing up, I was a big. Uh, some very quick backstory because we didn't get into this. So my my father used to get told he looked like John Aston all the time. My father got John Aston. Yeah. Um, uh, Dennis Hopper without without the mustache. Dennis Hopper was really like it's funny though with the mustache it was either John Aston or fucking Sonny Bono, which he was not a fan of at all. Um, <laughs> but it weirdly as a, a party as a kid, I got told I looked like Sean Aston as a kid. Oh. I was like, oh, that's cool. It's just to go from Goonies playing Mikey and Goonies, and then he was just, then he's like playing like the chubby nerds after that or whatever. But I I just always liked him, and I'm glad he had a recent renaissance. First off. I will go on record as saying, um, I even said this in the middle of a wor- big work meeting, Sean Astin as, or as Sam, Samwise Gamgee is the greatest best friend slash supporting character in film history. Like, Oh yeah. It literally couldn't be more of, but he's just, anyways, I love Sean Astin. He was the reason to that, cry in return of the King. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, dude, he's just the most, Oh God, I still, I still will up. Um, <laughs> what a great character, but, um, but I'm just glad he's had this renaissance, but I was at the time, you know, cause that he had done, um, this movie, uh, <laughs> uh, I think before that, I literally think the last thing or one of the last things he had done uh, before uh, in Man was this movie called The Willies, or it was like in between. That was one of the worst uh, low budget horror movies of the 80s, even though I have a fondness for it because that's sort of my brain. <laughs> I but, remember The Willies. Uh, but um, so I was just glad to see him in a sort of a, you know, a sort of role. So I, for that reason alone, and I will say it's the most likable First off, everybody knows Brian Fraser is also a national treasure, and thank God that he's sort of had a, a bit of better luck because he's had some struggles in his life. Um, but it will also say it was the only time when uh, Paulie Shore was actually very likable. Uh, <laughs> it was like he hadn't worn out his welcome yet with his "We's in the Jews" and stuff. Like it was the start of people being done with Paulie Shore. It was <laughs> yeah, no, right from the get go, people were done. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, my friend Harant Nalbantian. Haran, if you somehow listen to this, uh, I miss you, buddy. His father, so her, my friend Haran was a uh, first generation um, Armenian. His dad, born in his whole, his fa- whole parents and before, all born in Armenia. His dad barely spoke English. His dad's favorite film actor of all time is Polly Shore. Every single Polly Shore movie. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not going to name them, but like, you know, in the army now, like he would watch all of them and think they were fucking hysterical. He literally thought Paulie Shore was the funniest person. And I was like, there must be something. And then tr- I don't know, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm glad somebody explained that he's, you know, he's still making movies, but anyways, I love Encino man, it, but is it a time travel movie to answer your actual question? If we consider the Rip Van Winkle sort of scenario, a time travel movie, then sure. Because that's literally, it's, just, yeah. you know, but yeah, I don't, it wouldn't be the first thing I think of, but you know, there's a reason why it's on the the list. Uh, another one you already mentioned, which was Donnie Darko. We don't have to go much further into that, except for I wanted to say I do like Donnie Darko, but I do think that it's overrated. So I I, I actually agree with you. I also was wondering about uh, a couple of ones that uh, fit into the romance section would be Safety Not Guaranteed or Happy Accidents. Um, safety Not Guaranteed, and I'll let you talk about it because there's an interesting story behind that movie. Uh, it was one of the ones I haven't seen, and I, I wanted to see it since it got released, and I was going to watch it this weekend to sort of 
it just I just couldn't get around. But some movie I do actually want to see because just even the story behind it's interesting. So it's worth seeing, and so is happy. I, I think you're the one who recommended I see Happy Accidents back in 2000. That's the one with uh, Marissa Tomei and May and the two of my favorite people of all time, Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio, and and I mean literally like my one of my favorite male actors and one of my biggest crushes. So. It's not, it's not like a brilliant movie, but it's it's very fun. If I had to pick one or the other, I would definitely go with Happy Accidents. Uh, both of the stories are about, they're not particularly similar in, in their plots, except for that they deal with a woman who is questioning her own sanity and falling for someone who clearly believes in time travel. Uh, and Safety guar- Not Guaranteed, it's literally based on an actual personals ad that showed up in a, in a real newspaper uh someone looking for a companion to travel through time with and uh, uh must bring your own supplies and and uh, safety not guaranteed and it actually ended up on jane leno's headlines and all of this they found out later it was just the guy who was in charge of editing the personals section uh was running light on story on uh ads that day and was asked to just kind of throw one out there and so it it was intended as a joke uh but it caught the attention of this filmmaker too and great performances it's it's about a a magazine investigating that personal ad and aubrey plaza has to kind of covertly go in as if she's answering the personal ad and then she starts to believe well maybe there is something to this story and are they really going to time travel and i'm not going to spoil it for anyone as to whether they do but i i will say that you get up into the very end before you find out if time travel is real or not so there's no actual time travel in the story uh whereas happy accidents it's marissa tomei falling in love with the man who claims he's from the future and is creating arguments and and things that are are much more compelling and a lot harder to disprove uh because they aren't based on whether or not science uh science has come up with time travel yet uh and and more to do with you know they've come up with it in the future and now he's here uh and he thinks people are following him and there's a whole list of things uh that he that he puts on her in terms of uh how you can determine who's a time traveler and all of this and she's falling for him because he's very sweet uh on top of potentially being deranged and dangerous but uh and and i'm not going to give away the ending to that one either as to whether or not uh it's the truth but i think because you're dealing with a character who is from another time who is a fish out of water and is spending the movie being impressed and amazed by his surroundings you know he is very much a fish out of water falling in love with someone who existed in a time prior to him and i think that does count as a time travel movie i think the jury's still out on safety not guaranteed uh but i would say that happy accidents is a time travel movie and people should see both of them but my my money's on uh happy accidents yeah, there was like the 2000s, the very early 2000s, like had a lot of uh, indie comedies that I just, I just, I don't know if it was the relationships I was in at the time, but I, I saw all of them. I literally saw pretty much anyone that got a theatrical release, all of the, you know. Uh, indie I, rom-coms were a thing in the late 90s, early huge, 2000s, yeah. man. I mean, but, and, I mean we, I and we were the perfect age to be, to be seeing 20s. those at that time. On this topic, though, obviously, if you're going to talk, you have to talk about one of the greatest love stories of all time, try and travel or not. And that is the movie Demolition Man. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so There's definitely room for Demolition Man. I mean, if you're talking about movie, like it's definitely, I mean, Brave New World that it's very loosely based off of is the, is the quintessential Rip Van Winkle sort of you know story. And, you know, man waking up, man from the past who's now considered to be like a you know, a savage 
in this, you know, much more um, sophisticated new world and stuff. Um, PC you know. world. And of course, you know, Demolition Man decides to turn that, take that and go to the fucking, like, the single most over the top. Everything about Demolition Man is as over the top as it gets. In fact, I do feel like, and I know my buddy Derek, if you're Derek, if you're listening, um, this one's for you. Does Dirty uh, Derek listen to our show? I don't know. I hope I've so. never met I Dirty Derek. Either. I only know Dirty Derek through your... Am I allowed to say the name of the other show? Sure. The Movie Misfits podcast. If anyone wants more of their fill on James during the week. uh, Who can't get more of this? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't mean to interrupt, but we we were on our 17th episode and we've talked about your other podcast so many times and I've just never asked permission to promote it. And I know you're not going to promote it. Well, to be fair though, also we don't even know there is as... We've had some problems with names because originally we were under the Tank Rodriguez Show umbrella, and then we had two separate shows under the umbrella. We had the um, Texas Podcast Massacre and Going Commando, which is separately a horror and a action movie podcast separately, obviously, if you can decipher from the names. But now we've tried to do them separate from the Tank Rodriguez Show as its own entity, and we chose the movie Misfits, and then turned out at pretty much almost the exact same time we launched two other podcasts launched with uh, the, that same name. Oh no. Um, yeah. One was like a month before us and one was like a week after us. So um, look for it out there. Um, you'll find it. Uh, if you're so, if you can't get enough of me and me rambling about movies. Yeah. Honestly, if you're anyways, looking for back episodes, look for the tank Rodriguez show anyways. Cause uh, the switch to go, the movie exactly. misfits, uh, you've got what two or three episodes of that under your belt, but there's over a hundred tank Rodriguez shows. That's right. So, if you want to back catalog James, uh, I didn't mean to get us off track, but I, I listen to every single one of them. Well, I don't listen to the wrestling one just cause that's not my world and I won't get all the references, but the action and horror stuff I, I love listening to, and I've never met your co-hosts, but uh, D- dirty Derek in particular, we should try to get him on this show sometime. Uh, and he can sure, talk yeah, about demolition. Man. I think he'd be, I think he'd be honored. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I, demolition man, if you've never seen it is basically about, um, Basically, Sylvester Stallone plays a cop who is defawed because, like, they this is a guy named Simon Phoenix, this crime lord, and he's so outrageous and so crazy that they can't find anybody to deal with him. So they defaw Sylvester Stallone. He's basically like a fish out of water. He doesn't get it. The three seashells, Taco Bell's the only restaurant. There's all these like crazy, <laughs> stupid. Uh, I've had to talk about the three seashells more in my life than I ever cared to. Thanks, Derek. But um, <laughs> but it's a fucking suit. I mean, this was like you know '90s Stallone, so he was he was starting to get his career was starting to wane a little bit as he got into you know films that weren't as huge. In fact, he had some bit pretty big com- commercial and critical flops, such as uh, his version of Judge Dredd. God damn it! And then you know, and then some movies I feel that are actually pretty maligned, like Cliffhanger, which I think is actually a fucking really cool movie that people don't give enough respect for. But so this movie though is just real. It's just pure cheese um i will say uh you know this movie made a star out of um sandra bullock before speed this is the first Um, time i saw her for sure yeah i I mean she was a cutie pie then but i will say the standout of this movie is definitely wellesley snipes and simon phoenix um the blonde phoenix get it get it he rises like a phoenix i love how subtle this movie is movie just hits you over the head with its subtle um And, that's and, what Stallone's really well known for. Um, and and I love Wesley Snipes uh, in this film. He's a lot of fun, but I do have to point out that he really went to the Cesar Romero school of of supervillain acting. Over the this. top acting, I know. Yes, I mean, I just... He, but again, he though, I think it's so... Gleeful. That's the one thing, though. Um, as I, I've talked about this before, sometimes that really works. There are certain 
roles and performances where the, you can tell the actor took a choice and it really works. Kiss of the Vampire. Now, is it Kiss of the Vampire? Oh, fuck. I'm the like, Nicolas Cage one? Yes, the Nicolas Cage movie. Vampire's I mean, Kiss. What's Vampire's Kiss? That is a fucking bold decision he made in that movie. Uh, although I guess that, that more calls a script. But certain times overacting really works. And to me, in this case, I think Wesley Snipes being so over the top and so cartoonish and comic book style, I think works for him. And I think he does it really well. And it's a good counterpoint to Stallone's character, who was sort of like, he's playing the quintessential sort of like silent, kind of like sardonic badass. Um, but yeah, it's a great movie if you like fun, dumb action films. And I do think, you know, it's uh, infinitely rewatchable even today. Do I love it as much as my, my pal Dirty Derek? No, I do not. But uh, that he <laughs> loves that movie. But it's definitely a fun, rewatchable movie. And I do think that it is a time travel movie. Well, it's Rip Van Winkle time travel, but it is time travel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that makes it to me why I, I think I define it extra as time travel is because it is showing a a man who's waking up into this whole new futuristic world that he doesn't know anything. He's basically having to relearn society. And ultimately, whether it's a time machine or cryogenically frozen, ultimately that's sort of the same thing, you know, in the long run. So, but yeah, uh, Demolition Man, is it a, uh, is it a time travel movie? I would vote. Yes. I would say 100% that is a time travel movie. You know, in, in Kuwait, it's actually called uh, Rambo. The destroyer is the title of <laughs> demolition man love it. reminds me too, just uh to weave back into the last episode because there was a fun fact i forgot an army of darkness uh in japan army of darkness was released as captain supermarket i think that's <laughs> kind of great <laughs> Someone might, we could talk about what we maybe we'll do a whole episode about international release international films release and getting different title changes and stuff like because some of them there are some really insane ones but that's one of the better ones uh uh supermarket that's that's pretty good back to demolition man real quick there are a couple of what ifs first off uh wesley snipes was not the initial choice for phoenix uh sylvester stallone very much wanted jackie chan uh but jackie chan felt at the time that playing a villain in an american movie was not going to work out well for him with his international career playing the good guy uh and it also probably would have correctly he he made the right decision because it would have probably typecast him as a villain in the united states as well for a while the 90s was pretty big on typecasting people yeah uh, especially foreigners and the uh casting choices prior to stallone even being involved was actually uh steven seagal and jean-claude van damme i say i knew jean-claude was part of it yeah and neither one of them wanted to take the role because they both wanted to play like neither one of them wanted to play Phoenix. No one wanted to be the villain. So they just said, well, fuck it. Both of you, we're getting you out of here and, and brought in the, <laughs> the actors who went on to do it. But uh, thank God, Steven Seagal just kind of uh, didn't do anything that most people wanted to take a look at. Uh, Cause I think he's just kind of a scumbag. Uh, but Jean-Claude Van Damme did uh, stick his toe into the time travel pool. We, we did promise you guys some JCVD. James, what are your feelings on Time Cop? Because you were probably it's something that I've gotten into later in in life, but you were probably right there on top of that movie as it came out in the nineties. Oh, absolutely! I saw that shit in the theater <laughs> opening day. I have no qualms about saying I was a diehard John Claude Van Damme fan. Um, still am. I think especially as he's redeemed himself, redeemed himself as a human being. I think, but also sort of also had. John Coffin Dan was a guy that definitely did not have a sense of humor by himself as a young actor and now has had a fantastic sense of humor by himself. Very um, Shatner-esque in a, in a weird sort of way. Very much. Yes, absolutely. That's a great analogy. Like he's very self-aware of who he is and he doesn't now mind playing to that. 
But Time Cop was a movie. It was actually two, it was a double. It hit me two times because one was it was a it was a brand new Jean Claude Van Damme movie and kind of a bigger budget, bigger yeah. theatrical release because a lot of his films were small release and sometimes even straight to video. Movies, yeah, this like, is a big uh, one for for Van Damme. And it was also based off a Dark Horse comic, uh, not a particularly good comic book, but it was still a comic book adaptation. So I was very excited about it. Is it a great movie? No. Is it a fun movie? Yes. Hell There's some yes. great sequences in it. There's this whole like um, robber barons thing where they like they're gonna rob a stagecoach and all of a sudden they pull off fucking you know futuristic guns and it, there's just a lot of cool shit there's the whole thing in the in the there's the opening sequence i remember when they're in the the mall and you know the robber the person actor's running and he's running he looks all of a sudden you see john claude Van foot like it like it's about to hit him in the face like he didn't yeah. have to kick him he scares like it was just so cool uh john claude Van had a very crispy mullet in it so be aware there is there's a high mullet quantity is, yes jean claude van mullet uh, is in this film yeah and yes. and that but I mean, I, I, that I can imagine yeah, that mall scene is probably uh, better and more authentic than the uh, Wonder Woman eighty four mall scene. Yes, hands down. Yes, agreed. Oh Jesus, listen, I, mean, I can't talk about that movie again. Um, it, it got eviscerated at the time. It was not a. Uh, com- uh, I don't know if it was commercially successful. I don't think it was that commercially successful. It did all right. It was critically torn apart. <laughs> yeah, um, critics hated think, it. Yeah, but I think at this point. I feel like it's become like I think I talk to people now, especially people younger than me. But like, oh yeah, I love Time Cop. I'm like, well, it's good. I'm glad it's had. It's not that it's some like cult classic or whatever, but I do feel like people sort of embrace it for what it was. He hadn't made his fucking movie with uh, Des Rodman yet, which we won't <laughs> even talk about. But it does fall into a def- Van Damme trope, though. Van Damme seems to love movies that involve two Van Dams in one frame. Uh, That's right. He, that just seems to be something he visits over and over again. You know what? I know I'm in this movie, but I think this movie needs another one of me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So two Van Dams um, for the price of one in Time Cop. Actually, you know, I just looked it up. Actually, it still remains Van Damme's highest grossing film as a lead actor. It, um, and his second film to break a hundred million barrier worldwide. So good. Good for him. I mean, yeah. you know, like I said, it wasn't, I remember the time it was, it, you know, I think, you know, people went to see it the opening day and didn't, didn't do much after that. Uh, I do feel like we will need to revisit Van Damme as a whole episode because I have a lot to talk about in his filmography. And I would love um, to do that. Uh, Partly because I didn't give him, you know, I, I was very dismissive of him at his height and it's, it's something I that I have gone back. It's yeah. Very understandable. <laughs> uh, but um, I love him now. And did I ever tell you about my, uh, I had a script idea. I don't know if this would be a movie or if this is like a, a short thing that I would try to sell to Adult Swim or what. But I, I want to uh, combine two 80s classics uh, or 80s, 90s classics and uh, tell the story about a group of ragtag police officers who go off on madcap adventures in love and life and booze throughout various decades, much to the chagrin of their gruff and surly commandant played by jean-claude van damme and it would be called time cop academy <laughs> i would watch the shit out of that <laughs> dude i would watch every episode i would that's right up my alley it started off as a joke but now i'm actually thinking you know that would be kind of fun to write i've never written anything that absurd before so please so do maybe time cap academy coming to a uh, theater near you or or at least to Adult Swim or some sort of place that would <laughs> accept that kind of material. You know, Adult Swim was also very responsible, I think, for uh, uh, a movie like Kung Fury, which isn't an Adult Swim short, but uh, 
Kung Fury does involve time travel. I don't know if you're, a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I think we're running a little too low on time to cover Kung Fury too deeply. Yeah, we won't. Yeah, we don't, but it's, it's a short film anyways, but yeah, yeah look, it's, look it's, it up folks. Kung Fury is, is definitely worth your time. If you have an affinity for movies like time cop. And uh, there, there is one I want to throw out there before we get too much further, because there's such a, uh, a distinct feeling to the future from the perspective of the nineties. And I think demolition man had it. And I think time cop had it. And I think free Jack has it. Have you ever seen free Jack? I have seen free Jack. It's been a while, but yeah, I have seen free Jack. <laughs> That's uh is that the Gene Simmons one? Uh, no, that is uh, Mick Jagger and Buster Poindexter himself. Uh, what, what's his real name? Uh, Johansson, um, David Johansson. Yeah. David Johansson. I uh, thought, and they are supporting, um, Emilio Estevez. Oh, Emilio Estevez. Yes, yes. With, with Mick, Renee Mick, Russo Mick, and Anthony Hopkins. And and Anthony Hopkins and, and Mick Jagger have both gone on to say that they uh, think this is the worst film that either of them was in. Uh, this was horribly trashed when it came out. But it's looking at it. I did rewatch it recently in leading up to this just because I was kind of like, well, let's let's give Free Jack another shot. Let's let's see if there's something there. Uh, because I remembered enjoying it, but I was also 12. I will say that Free Jack has gotten an unfair amount of criticism. It is not a good movie. I'm not trying to push this as some sort of a lost classic or anything. Uh, but if you like silly movies, I think enough time has passed to allow Free Jack to be a, a fun, bad movie. Emilio Estevez plays a, a race car driver who is pulled out of a fatal accident just before his death, uh, pulled into the future. Uh, I think it was seriously like, I think it was like 1997. I don't know why these movies don't project out further. Uh, <laughs> somehow between 1991 and 1997, there was going to be a whole apocalyptic uh, scenario and time travel was going to be possible. And rich people were going to free Jack bodies uh, before they are destroyed in fatal accidents in other points in time. And uh, kind of in a, for lack of a better way to describe it, it's almost like Get Out, uh, the the recent uh, Jordan Peele comedy, which or comedy uh, horror film, which <laughs> comedy, yeah, right, oh, Jesus, um, <laughs> first horror film in ages to to actually win the best screenwriting Oscar, and I called it a comedy. Uh, I mean, it's it's got funny moments. It's it got does. Funny elements. No, what a great movie. Uh, but uh, similar conceit in this: uh, rich people as they are dying are able to put their bodies, their brains into the minds or the bodies. <laughs> Emilio Estevez's character in his real time, uh, his car crashes into like the side of a bridge and or a tunnel and explodes. So when there's no traces left behind, nobody is any of the wiser. So now he's stuck in the future and he manages to get away despite the fact that he's been free jacked by uh, Mick Jagger himself. And, uh, becomes a, a a race through the future as Emilio Estevez tries to put the pieces together and uh, actually ends up forming a, an interesting bond with Mick Jagger's character uh, to where they start off kind of taunting each other. And then it starts to turn into them helping each other in sort of a sportsman like kind of way, like, uh, well, I've got you now, but I'm going to give you five minutes to run before I send my men, that sort of thing. And again, is it good? No. Did I enjoy myself for about an hour and 40 minutes? Yeah. It, the nostalgia is there now for that stage of Emilio Estevez's career. I think we can enjoy it. By the way, the movie I was thinking of was actually Runaway because I often confuse those two movies because they both 
have a rock star and a leading sort of supporting role, a science fiction movie that weirdly features like a legitimate actor <laughs> and then some random rock star. I will say weirdly though, even though I much, I'm a much bigger fan. Gene Simmons is a hu- human piece of shit. I, I weirdly have a weird soft spot for Kiss as a entity. I think aesthetically, I love them. And there's there's definitely a nostalgia element of, you know, uh, I still remember being scared of them. But Gene Simmons is such a piece of shit. But he's actually a pretty good actor. Where where Mick Jagger is much more of a respectable rock star, respectable musician, not a great actor. Um, even though he was, like, he was serviceable. But, well, he has um, his moments. I thought performance was really good. And uh, yeah. His version of Ned Kelly was interesting, uh, but we're still, we're talking about him much more in his prime. Whereas I feel like uh, in a lot of ways, the Rolling Stones were only getting better into the nineties. His acting was uh, <laughs> falling off a bit uh, and he didn't do too much past free Jack. Uh, if anything, I'm not sure if has Mick Jagger done anything since free Jack uh, acting wise. He's yeah. He think he has, I think he's done one or two things. I, one, I'd have uh, to look it up, but one of the I can remember him movies from, about Basquiat or something. The, yeah i mean exactly i'll have to look that up but yeah i mean the thing is like sometimes there's movies that even if they're not great movies there's something interesting at least in the script or in the conceit or in the overall like sort of plot of the movie that's really interesting and i think free jack is one of those cases where it's actually a pretty interesting concept it just maybe execution didn't uh, if they were to remake it now i think it would actually really work which is kind of interesting that Jordan Peele kind of uh, had a, a similar conceit. I'm sure that Jordan Peele wasn't particularly inspired by Free Jack, but that similar sort of, uh, it's definitely the rich being obscene and and uh, looking down on other people. By the way, he was, uh, uh, he was he's in a movie just a few years ago, uh, uh, two years ago, Burnt Orange Heresy, where he was playing a character, um, Mick Jagger. He was also in the movie Get On Up. I don't know if he was... I haven't seen that movie, although it is uh, the James Brown biopic. Uh, he was in a movie, The Man from Elysian Fields, which I, yeah, okay, oh, that's yeah. actually one of yeah. the things I remember the that. Yes. So yeah, okay. he's done a few things, but anyways, just wanted to make sure that we uh, try try to be uh, accurate with our information. Um, anyways, he was also in one of the weirdest fucking movies that seemed to always be on TV, uh, Jumping Jack Flash from 1986. Fucking that movie was ambiguous. I could not escape that movie. It was on HBO every day, Jumping Jack Flash. And it, it's a fun movie. The Whoopi Goldberg movie? Yeah. Anyways, weird side tangent. But uh, <laughs> one thing, though, because we were talking about, is it a time travel movie? One of the biggest subgenres, and I know you wanted to talk about this as well, is the kind of time loop are caught in a time loop reliving the same moment or day. And there's a lot of those, weirdly. There is. It's Um, almost its own. Like, I think you could almost argue that they're not time travel because there's so many of them. And they're not really. Part of it is that they're not traveling. Well, and that, but it is a thing of like, they're going back to the same. Like, there is definitely, I mean, obviously, if you're just. Give us some examples. Semantics alone. So, so the people know What's what we're talking. Give, give us some examples so that we. The most classic talking. example of all time is Groundhog's Day, which Groundhog's Day is one of the most perfect films ever made. Yes, um, amen. There's literally nothing, I mean, everything in that movie works. I, I, I love the history of that movie and like how it got made. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Harold Ramis wrote the script. And originally he wanted, they, there was an explanation. Like there's like a fucking gypsy curse. And the fact that the movie, that they fucking nixed that out of the, that portion of the script out of the film and you're never given an explanation, I think makes that movie so much better Infinitely um, better. There was a time when Andy McDowell was probably like the coolest actress. She was like, you know, four winnings at a funeral era, like sex, life, you know, and videotape. 
text lies and videotape exactly um and i think but she's never been more likable than in this movie but it's like dude bill murray just being amazing you know just i want you say it's, it's groundhog's day i've never met one person uh, there are movies people hate you know the godfather people hate everything you can find somebody who hates everything i have never met one person that hates groundhog's day they may not have seen it but i've never met a single person that watched it and didn't love it it is it's it's pretty near perfect uh in fact i i would say it's perfect uh it, and it is like you said it's it's what they don't tell you you don't know how this happened which means that you also don't know how it's going to end uh, although you get a pretty good sense of it uh from the tone that it's going to have to do with phil's just going to have to become a better person he reaches so far into it it's not that he has to wait to become a better person because he he has to spend a lot of time to learn how to play piano and uh you know all these other things he figures out how to be a better person much sooner than he actually gets out of the time loop but another thing that they leave unanswered uh, that I've always found interesting because you'll get different arguments from different people is just how long was he living Groundhog's Day? Because I've heard some people say 10 years, which seems absolutely cruel. And I've heard some people that have said 4,000 years, which yeah. is fascinating to think of in terms of... <laughs> and the thing is, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think there is this like a like a making of or like documentary about it where Harold Ramis actually says, like he doesn't... I'd have to rewatch it to, to make sure that I'm not misremembering it, but where he basically, he says he know he knows what the answer is, but he, he refused to like sort of say, but yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's just a great, that's the thing is there's it's so much fully in like this movie is every Buddhist's favorite movie. Like seriously, the religion has kind of made Groundhog's it. day, like their, their movie that they recommend that their religion itself. I find that great. Well, first off, one of the things I love about the movie is there's so much of the movie happens in between what we see, like in between the scenes we see, there's so much movie, obviously, like you said, because you can, you don't, you don't, you don't see him learn all the skills he acquires through it. Like you don't, they don't need to show you that, but the way that the movie is written, you can tell he's already lived through some interesting shit and he's gone through these different phases. Um, that it's, just, it's just such a great script. It's so smart. But I will say, even though he does learn to be a better person, I do feel like the point of it is the whole time he's trying to like still, even though he even though he has become a better person, he's learned lessons. There's an unselfish aspect to the love. It is reciprocated. There's nothing manipulative inherently. Even when he's learned to be a better person, he's doing nice things and he's doing things for the community. He's still innately trying to manipulate the situation. And I do think at the end scene, it is purely unselfish un and it's completely, the love is reciprocated either way. The fact that this silly comedy from the, uh, I don't know, like 87, 86. No, this was like 93. Is it 93? I was almost said nineties and I felt like that was too wrong. I'll tell you right now. 93. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. Well, yeah. Even, even more impressive. Like I said, the silly movie that came out of nowhere and it's, it's again, it's a movie. I've, I've talked about this movie with people for, I think I might even spend a night at you at Denny's and, and other friends of ours oh, talking yeah. about this movie, but oh yeah, it's just one of those movies. The movie came out last year that, you know, people are like, spoiler, I work for the company that released it. Uh, that has nothing to do with my job at the company, but I work for the company who was the streaming service who, who released it. And internally there was all this talk, like it's the best thing we've ever done and stuff. And I heard the plot and I was like, what is it? Is it a, literally a remake of Groundhog's Day? Cause it's, I mean, it's crazy, which is the movie Palm Springs. And I hated it before I even saw it. Cause I was like, there's no way I don't, I don't care if it's genius. It's such a exact copy of Groundhog's Day that there's no way I'm going to like it. 
surprisingly enough, no, the movie's actually very charming and very, uh, very enjoyable. Definitely, even though it's premise wise is very, very, very close to Groundhog's Day, it's still its own movie and it's still charming. And I think that the dialogue is really fun. Andy Samberg, I think, is was the perfect person for that role because you can see him as a character sort of he's still a likable guy, but he's sort of a train wreck of a person and stuff. And it's definitely a fun movie because of how much it shares just overall plot wise with Groundhog Day. It's so hard for me. It's even hard for me to say it now. Like it is a good movie though. It's, it is good, even though it's very much, you've seen this plot before, but it's the way that the movie itself rolls out the story and, and where the characters go. That is interesting. And there's some, there are some interesting elements to it, like some interesting subplots and stuff that are different from Groundhog Day. That's also interesting, but did, I don't know. Did you see it? see that no um, it's on my that. list uh it's it's something that i i'll get around to it it's it's something i have a feeling i i can probably uh put in put on on a night when uh, my wife and i are looking for something to watch rather than my my late night movies which is most of my movies to be honest yeah for real uh, so I, i've been kind of waiting for the right time to uh to pull it out you know on on a saturday night where her and I are alone or whatever. And it just hasn't come around yet, but I really want to see it. I really like Andy Samberg. And like we said in the last episode, it's okay. If it's a lot like groundhog's day, because modern audiences need something to grab onto. That's not groundhog's day. And honestly, it'll be a lot easier to show groundhog's day to somebody who appreciates Palm Springs yeah. and to keep groundhog's day legacy alive. It's not to bury groundhog's day, nor is they they both they they belong in in their own space and another one that kind of belongs in its own space is uh, Edge of Tomorrow as kind of the uh, the hardcore sci-fi action version of the exact same conceit. Uh, did you ever yep. see that one with Tom Cruise? Just watched it actually. I watched it just a few days ago. Uh, surprisingly, I loved it. Let's, I'm not I'm, a huge Tom Cruise fan, so I was so delighted to see that <laughs> see a movie that it's I funny. Liked in the last few years, I've realized I am a huge Tom Cruise fan, even though I've never seen one of the Mission Impossible films and probably never will. Just it's not my thing. It's like the Jason Bourne, you know, even James Bond, I can only take so much of. And only then I like it because the aesthetics and the sort of campy vibe of it and, you know, the uh, sort of mid-century modernist, you know, visuals of the James Bond films, the early James Bond films. Again, new ones don't really have any, like, I know I'm missing out and stuff, that's a whole separate conversation, which we will. That's our personal thing for 2021 is actually for me to watch all of the, like try to force myself to watch all of the modern James Bond films and all of the Jason oh. Bourne films. It's just not normally not my thing. But having said that going through, I just a huge, weirdly, I just am a huge fan of Tom Cruise as an actor, even the films, even like war of the worlds, which is not, I don't think it's deserves to be as maligned as it is. In fact, no. I think the first 30 minutes of war of the worlds is actually one of the most tense, terrifying truly scary science fiction action film like it actually is very upsetting it's actually terrifying but again it's it, it has the conceit of unlikable kids and like that's a whole other topic anyways but edge of tomorrow let's talk about edge of tomorrow yeah weirdly like and it's by doug lyman the guy yeah. who did swinger so it's just it's just a weird it's based off of this manga called uh all you need is kill which is <laughs> almost wish they kept that i like all you need is kill more than i like live die repeat which is the other title they're trying to force it to have it's yeah. kind of an odd thing they've they made this the slogan for the movie larger than the title of the movie because they didn't think anyone was going to buy edge of tomorrow uh so if you hear which anybody was such a lackluster it's a lackluster it title a... on its own but live die repeat is a dumb title too 
absolutely. So if, if you're wondering what movie we're talking about, if you haven't seen this and you're, you know, scrolling through what movies to watch, the one that you might think is called Live, Die, Repeat is Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. And, and yeah, way it's, worth it's, watching. Probably yeah, the last great f- thing that Bill Paxton did. Yeah. Weirdly, also, I didn't realize because I'd never heard anybody talk about it, but Tony Todd is in it mm-hmm. in one re like one small role that just keeps happening over and over again. But I'm like, what? Tony Todd? Weird. Um, and that's the Candyman for those of you out there, the horror icon Tony Todd. But yeah, it's it's weirdly such a likable like script seeing Tom Cruise. First of all, Tom Cruise kind of played against type because at the beginning of the movie, he's sort of a coward and kind of a, you know, he's, he's, he's not fucking Jack Reacher. He's sort of like kind of like a scumbag opportunist coward guy. Like he's like an ad guy. A, uh, he's he does like propaganda journalism. But then again, I like the fact that like, they don't really explain too much about like the origin of these alien life forms and, and the conceit of like, you get splashed with the blood of an alien and like, it give, like a lot of it makes no sense or, or it's sort of high concept stuff but i like the fact that they don't try to explain it like let's just go with it let's just get on to it and get into what this film is about um which is very anime a very like um there's a thing in japan called light novels which is basically like young adult novels with some illustrations that's what it's actually originally a light novel then got true then they've done a manga and anime and different things but it's that's very much anime they, they don't they don't need to explain that like Western audiences need everything fucking, they need to be handheld. They need everything to be explained. Japan. No, let's just, it's high concept. Let's go with it. We're more interested in the characters and the character, like all the performance is great. A lot, even a lot of the, 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 the people aren't like Bill Paxton and, and Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise. I think they're really good in their roles and stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah I really enjoyed it. I honestly did not think I was going to like it as much as I did. And I, I actually walked away. I was like, fuck dude, I, that might be one I need to buy. Like I might need to own that. Did you see the Did you see the Jack Reacher film? No, I, I had no interest. I'll probably check it out eventually. It's fucking really good, man. It's really good, and fucking seeing Werner Herzog as the villain. Oh, I love I was him. Like, this I didn't guy know should he be the, in it. He's the he's the main bad guy, and he's fucking amazing in it, and super creepy. It's a great movie. That's, I I enjoy the sequel. People don't like the sequel as much. Uh, there's a lot of people who dislike it because in the book. The Jack Reacher novels are sort of a very like reactionary right wing, like super macho military guy who's just and in the book he's like some like six six, you know, Aryan dream dude. He's not the five six little uh dark haired Tom Cruise. But that's why I think it's more interesting. It's like you can get some big you know, you can get like somebody like Chris Hemsworth to do it. And I think actually they, they are doing a TV series and I think it is somebody like Chris Hemsworth. And that's a no dig against Chris Chris Hemsworth. But I like the movie. I actually think it's really smart. I think it's some of the action sequences are phenomenal in it. And I think he's really good in it. Anyways, we can talk about Tom Cruise. I fact, I have a lot to say about Tom Cruise as a person and his oh. public persona and like people I know who've worked on films that like he was a part of and what they've had to say about him and stuff. So we could uh, we'll have to revisit that. But uh, but also Magnolia, his performance in Magnolia is one of the greatest performances in my lifetime as being a human being watching films, his role in Magnolia, unbelievable. One of the greatest performances ever. And I mean that sincerely. I will go like, he is such a, anyways, it's a whole other topic. This is already a long podcast. Anyways, Edge of Tomorrow is a sci-fi action movie version of Groundhog's Day. I do want to talk about a movie that's the horror movie version of Groundhog's Day. And it's actually a really good movie. And that's uh, Happy Death Day. I really need to see it. Um, first of all, usually Blumhouse films come out and I'm like immediately like, I guess I'll watch this begrudgingly, but came up first of that. I was like, the concept sounded dumb. I was like, what? Fucking a great, really, really well done 
basically it's like this girl wakes up on her birthday and she gets killed and as soon as she gets killed she wakes back up and she has to figure out who's killing her why she's getting killed and it's like this mystery there's actually a sequel that's actually really that's also really good but takes the movie into a whole different direction apparently they actually the director wanted to make it a a trilogy he had a whole idea for a trilogy and they first sounded like they weren't going to do it but now i guess bloomhouse at first like no we're we're not going to do a third one and i guess people were such a fan of the sequel too that i guess now they are talking about doing the trilogy but either way it's a really great movie if definitely you haven't seen it weirdly it's really fun um it's actually legitimately pretty funny and entertaining and like again for a little bloomhouse stupid modern horror movie it's actually really good I'll check it out. I had my curiosity because it was a, a Groundhog's Day time loop horror conceit that, that got my interest. Bloomhouse doesn't tend to do much for me. I mean, there's... In, You're not the only one. <laughs> some of what they do is amazing. Some of what they do is absolutely brilliant. Um, but so much of it is like Fantasy Island and stuff that I, I say it often, but you know, I've got other stuff. I, I try to not say I've got better stuff to watch, but I do have other stuff to watch. I have over a hundred years worth of movies to catch up on. And so at this point, now that I'm into my forties, y- you got to work to get it towards the top of my list at this point. I, not, not conceited, just realistic. And so most Blumhouse I will movies say are not going to reach the top of my list. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I will say though, I, one thing I will say about Jason Bloom is that while I don't always appreciate the films that he the you know there's a definitely a style of his films that maybe i'm not always a big fan of the fact that he is putting out bigger budget theatric release horror consistently and also trying to take a chance on movies like happy death day and uh get out get out with the bloomhouse yeah so i'm like he's definitely i i appreciate that there is a studio really trying to do theatrical horror consistently so good for them do 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 i like everything they do no but no. but i appreciate uh, that I, he's I, doing it and i agree with you i mean he's really even the name bloom house is sort of a, a almost a reference to you know hammer house of horror and yeah. the way that studios used to universal horror you know that back when yeah. a studio w- could be associated with and i know he's not a studio he's a production company but it, it, it's in that same vein uh, it's in that no yeah it's exactly another couple of films actually uh by the same director that i would like to mention sure there are two entries in this uh on this list by terry gilliam who is yeah worthy himself of a, a full we, episode it took us this long to get to this right uh well we're coming to a close we we always like to save a couple of heavy heavy hitters towards the end and i don't know how much we'll talk about them here because we are towards the end and and i do legitimately think that we will do a terry gilliam episode in the future so absolutely perhaps we can be a little forgiven for not dwelling too long on uh the two movies which are 12 monkeys and time bandits two of my favorite and one of my earliest introductions to time travel in fact now that I think about it, I think time travel might have been introduced to me through Time Bandits because that's the first thing I remember really loving uh, as, as a kid uh, prior to Back to the Future even because it was on HBO constantly uh, when I was growing up. Uh, do you have any fond memories growing up with Time Bandits? or uh, did you Oh, see- yeah, Time Bandits. Time Bandit, there's like a few movies. Time Bandits, Ice Pirates. There's a few films that were just <laughs> constantly on TV all the time. And I mean... Yeah, who doesn't love Time Bandits? I think with Time Bandits, it is for me specifically a little bit like Rose Tinted Glasses and Nostalgia as far as like, it's like Time Bandits is as good or as interesting of a film as later career Terry Gilliam stuff, as good, even as good as stuff like Baron Munchausen, or at least as interesting. No, like I would say no. Oh, I think it's, it's at least up. on the level of Baron Munchausen. I, I feel like it's definitely slower to me and maybe 
a little more clunky. Maybe I need to rewatch it. It has been a long time. And that's by no means a criticism. That's not saying if I don't enjoy it or not a good movie. I just feel like it's in my head. I consider it like early career Terry, or Terry Gillen before I really feel like he really found his voice or really, maybe you're right. Maybe Bear Munchausen and it are on the same level, but like things like Brazil, like that end, like, again, it's not fair. It, there, It's good movies. It doesn't matter. And it's definitely, you. It even from the get-go, he definitely had a voice. He definitely had a distinct style. And, you know, yeah, it's great. It's just weird that, like I said, it's same as you. Like, when we even talked about time travel movies, it was probably, in my head, it was probably Terminator, Back to the Future, and then Time Bandits. Because, again, it, as a kid, it was sort of, that was its whole, I mean, yeah. So I, I agree with you in that, that sense. It's, that's why I thought it was so weird that we have to talk about it until now. But weirdly, though, I don't have a relationship with 12 Monkeys. I saw it in the theater. I liked it. I know a lot of people love it. I thought Brad Pitt was great in it before Brad Pitt was Brad Pitt. But weirdly, it's not a movie I probably can. I don't know. I need to I think I, I it was the other movie I wanted to revisit. And I have seen it multiple times. It's not like I haven't seen it. I just haven't seen it recently, I guess. But it's just not a movie that stayed with me in the same way it really connected with other people. I think I just need to rewatch it um, again. Not it's that's not saying it's a bad movie, but like it spawned a TV series. Like, I mean, it definitely is a it left an indelible impression on a lot of people that I just don't feel like I connected with it the same way other people did. That's just a weird, like, again, it's that's, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I mean, it's definitely, it's a very interesting movie at the the twists and turns and the performances and stuff. I will say though, personally speaking, films that take place or have a big thing to do with insane asylums kind of bug me out a little bit, uh, which is weird because one flew of the cuckoo's is in my top 30 movies. But yeah, I think maybe that it's also just kind of like gets under my skin a little bit, like for whatever reason, sort of triggers some anxiety in me. Um, I have family members who have uh, mental disorders, so I think it's always been a little bit of a one of my triggers. But either way, yeah, it's, it's still a great movie and yeah, great performance. What, what, what about you, Dan? What do you? What is your feelings on those films? Like I said, I, I grew up loving Time Bandits. The performances, uh, it's seven little people and uh, one kid uh, who were traveling through time because they stole God's time map in order to uh, rob from uh, various eras and, and uh, plunder the riches and, and uh, get out of there before they're caught and they can't be found. It's, uh, it's actually kind of uh, all these little mini heists uh, that they're perpetrating. They, they, they rob uh, Napoleon, they rob Robin hood, uh, Sean Connery famously plays Agamemnon in the film and it's a lot of actors just having a lot of fun cameos by all of his terry gilliam's money python alums like uh, john cleese and michael palin are in the film shelly duvall shows up in the movie david warner as uh the supreme darkness the the evil being they never call him oh, the devil right, yeah uh but david warner making his second appearance on the time travel list here he's actually in a lot of ways the main reason to see it 12 monkeys i was in high school when that came out and i i was a fan it it was something that i loved and i would like to see it again myself at some point uh which which we will do when we do our gilliam episode and yeah. maybe i'll i'll reserve more of my opinion on what what i think of 12 monkeys but i will say that it's a a really fantastic movie it does twist the mind a little bit it's uh loosely based on la jete which a lot of people consider to be one of the most important time travel films ever made and it's it's a french short film told entirely in still photographs and uh, that's available on youtube if anybody wants to look up la jete and if you're a fan of 12 monkeys i highly recommend it because you're going to see where a lot of that stuff comes from there was a fun fact about time bandits that i was going to throw out uh real quick because i think it can kind of take us into a something of a uh at least our our finale space here. 
all of the time bandits, all seven of the little people, they did appear in another movie all together right after every single one of them. Do you, can you guess which movie that was right after it, right around like, like within a year or so, like I, my guess is that they probably did go straight to shooting it. Then it took a while to release. Oh shoot. All the little people. I mean, it would be a guess like Willow. I don't know. Return of the Jedi. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. I should Every single time yet. bandit. Yes. Uh, of course, Kenny Baker was one of the time bandits and he's uh, very famously, he is the actor behind R2-D2 uh, for all the original trilogy. And I believe for the prequels as well. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, but I, I think that um, he was able to attend the premiere of Force Awakens, but he did not play R2-D2 in that. But yeah, other time bandits went on to, I'm, I'm sure many of them were probably Ewoks. But uh, I wonder if they're also in Willow, though. I I, I wonder if they're also of, in Willow. Some of them are, I'm sure. One of them went on to be in Baron Munchausen. Uh, they they they, they they went several different ways. There was even talk of a time of a Time Bandits too at one point. But David Rappaport, I believe, is the name of the kind of unofficial leader of the Time Bandits. He he unfortunately he took his own life, and that uh, that was the end of any kind of sequel talk with Terry Gilliam. But this was well into like. Right, running right up to about uh, the time that he did 12 Monkeys. So perhaps 12 Monkeys was inspired in some way by the Time Bandit sequel uh, in terms of him wanting to tell another time travel story. Uh, but the reason I bring it up as a connection to a space series is because there's another space series. Time travel has been a major part of its storytelling. And I'm talking about Star Trek. No surprises probably to anybody who listens to this. The original series, the original crew, uh, went back in time at least three times. And then the original crew, if you're following the expanded storyline and getting out of uh, the William Shatner era, the whole reason why the re- the reboot can even exist is because they tied that into a time travel story. But I think when most people think of time travel and the original crew of the Starship Enterprise, they think of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, uh, which was directed by Leonard Nimoy uh, in 1987 and is one of the most beloved of the Star Trek feature films. First, I, growing up, I always thought it was really cool that Leonard Nimoy directed it. Uh, Shatner ended up directing five, and Nimoy, dire- Nimoy directed uh, three and four. But even as a kid, I remember that standing out is like, well, you know, Harrison Ford never directed a Star Wars. How cool is that? <laughs> so as a kid, I was very excited about this movie. So in the drive-in, um, yeah. I mean, I would think I was too young initially for most of the, the start, like to really like as I am now much bigger Star Trek fan now than I was growing up specifically of the uh, original series. Next generation is great, obviously, but there's something aesthetically about the original series, the 60s series that just fucking speaks to me. But as a kid, I watched them all. Um, We will saw them all in the theater. I even saw the uh, Star Trek, the motion picture in the theater. I probably fell asleep within five minutes. Do remember seeing Rathacon though? Loved Rathacon. I think I was probably, when did the motion picture come out? 80, 81? I was probably like a little fucking baby at that point. I was say 79 um, or 80. If it was 80, then we would have talked about it in our uh, 1980 episode. So uh, maybe I didn't. Maybe it was only Wrath of Khan I saw. I could have sworn I remember seeing. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I saw it. Maybe they re released I, I don't know. I just have a specific memory of I bet uh, they did re release it. That went on a lot more than people comprehend prior to uh, VHS. 79, yeah, I would have been beta. two years old. So. Before home video took over, though, things were frequently re-released, especially if they had a sequel coming. So you may have actually ended up seeing it, uh, maybe not in 79, but seeing it uh, just before Wrath of Khan came out. I think I might have actually, believe it or not, I think I might have seen it at this place called Pizza Chalet. 
Uh, they actually <laughs> used to show film like weekends. They would show they would project movies onto the wall. Um, and I do remember I went. I also saw uh, WrestleMania three there and had some other weird memory. Anyways, not the point of this uh, podcast. That we'll revisit my me- childhood memories. But yeah, I, I th- definitely think Voyage Home is one of the most entertaining, especially. The Star Trek motion pictures have this weird cadence of like even numbered ones were always the better ones. There's there's all this there's a weird history with those films, but but yeah, Voyage Home is it's it's known for like being very funny. Yeah, it takes place in contemporary San Francisco at the time. It's actually known for having one of the most authentic uh, looking true punk rockers uh, <laughs> in cinema history at the time, because a lot of times like punks were used on screen to be like bad guys or casting directors would be like they're punks but they're like a motorcycle band but that guy was a legit san francisco yeah. crust punk and like you know and there's a whole scene where like he uh you know he's playing his loud punk rocker when the bus is upset but even punk fans are like it's a cool scene because you know like spock gives him the old little nerf pinch whatever you know why that scene exists star trek 4 was written by nicholas meyer or nicholas meyer was one of the writers on it there were several contributors uh nicholas meyer who also did star trek 2 the wrath of khan and he did time after time the film that we spoke about in the last episode starring malcolm mcdowell and david warner also in san francisco when nicholas meyer wrote time after time he originally wrote for there to be this sort of um jack the ripper moment on the bus with someone blasting punk rock music uh, against everybody's will and it got trimmed and he always felt slighted he you know had to you know as they say kill your darlings uh for every writer (laughs) and so this was his way of getting that scene back in was he wrote it as spock giving the vulcan neck pinch to to the punk on the bus (laughs) Uh, and and this was Nimoy specifically made it funny because he felt that the last two had gotten so serious with the death of Spock and then the resurrection yeah. of Spock and the discovery and the death of Kirk's son. And it, it really was getting pretty heavy. And, and to see them go back and as a kid, hearing them curse, uh, you know, <laughs> hearing Captain Kirk say double dumbass to you to some guy on the streets uh i, I or just to even say the word bullshit uh something about not shatner saying it but to hear captain kirk say bullshit as a kid uh, it was something that somehow very gratifying there was one i know there like there's one point bones goes to like this hospital and like he's shocked at like the medical condition and but he does something i can't remember i wish i i knew but i remember the reason i was like that's not dude, that's so dangerous. They're like, Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And I remember being kind of upset about it recently, but he uh, just, he ends up giving this random, like this woman is told that she's not going to make it or something. And McCoy comes up behind her, and like gives her a pill. And then she just gets up and walks out. It's also the one with the nuclear vessels. Uh, apparently. I think that was actually an ad lib. I think uh nuclear vessels was a uh, Walter Koenig ad lib. J- <laughs> James Doohan, who plays Scotty, uh, got to give his favorite line in the whole series in it. Uh, Captain, there be whales here. Um, <laughs> it is. It's known for being the Star Trek about humpback whales, which is yes. is a weird subplot, but it's you know it works. Like and, and Nimoy got in hot water for that too. A bunch of environmental agencies came after him because they felt that it was mistreatment of the whales in the movie, and and Nimoy had to explain to them that ninety five percent of the shots with the whales were animatronic whales so no whales were actually harmed in the making of this movie they did use some actual whales in the san francisco harbor but other than that all the the contained stuff that was all artificial did you know uh who was going to originally play the role that Catherine hicks ended up playing i do not know as the earthling that has to link up with the crew of the enterprise to save her beloved whales that part was originally written for eddie murphy what yes this was really 
Eddie Murphy was bringing a lot of money into Paramount and so was Star Trek. And so, of course, naturally, they'd want to combine their two cash cows. And Murphy was on board. He was really excited to do a Star Trek. But when he found out he was playing an Earthling and not a actual member of Starfleet or an alien, he lost all interest. And I, I think Shatner had something to do with it being rewritten as a woman to give him someone to play off of. Because he, of he had not really gotten that in the movies as he did in the TV show. Which, uh, but even then, that's... I. <laughs> that was one of the things even rewatching where it's so kind of gross and unwarranted the probably my least favorite aspect of the film is that forced <laughs> relationship there but yeah it's such a fun watching them run around modern san francisco trying to like it's so and that's the thing is that cast was so fun that the og cast who didn't really i mean they would have small bits here and there like walter coning would do a few things here and there they were really great actors and really great in their roles. And it was really fun getting to see them in a different context. It's weird, though, because like you said, time travel is this thing that exists in science fiction that a lot of people have a problem with because they feel like it's easy. It's an easy fix. Like, oh, you have a, you wrote yourself into a corner? Time travel? Yeah. And it's really it's often seen as like a sort of a cheap cheat, you know, for basically like lazy writing. One of the biggest, I mean, we're going to talk about time travel movies in the year 2021, we have to talk about the biggest franchise in film history, the Avengers films. And when it was re- announced that at the end of Infinity War, that like after it got online, that, oh, it's going to be time travel, which they had been setting up for a long time. It wasn't like fans could see the first of you have the time stone, which is a legitimate thing in the Marvel Universe. But when people like, oh, it's going to be a time travel, people felt cheated. Like they're like, well, that's cheap and easy. But having said that, I think they actually pulled off time travel pretty well. I like that I they sort so. of made it. Yeah. And I, I liked all the jokes about like, what do you know about time travel? Everything you know about time travel is from movies and shit, like kind of explaining it. And then also if you're Marvel Studios and you're really trying to like grow your franchise beyond what you can currently do with your current actors, setting up that possibility of like, look, now you have fractured the timeline. Now you introduce the multiverse now you have an infinite playing field, which DC has done for days since day one, but to mixed results. Yeah. And it's really smart. It's it's a smart thing as a film company to do that. And I do think like, even though, again, I was one of the people like, really time travel out of the blue. That's so cheap. But they did it well. And I feel like I was emotionally invested in the film. I was a kid at 12 years old who was literally dreaming of an Avengers movie. I were literally reading Avengers comic books. And being like, man, I would love to see this, you know, in a movie. But like, thinking that's never going to happen, and getting to see it in, in the theaters, it was still, it to this day is still very like trippy because it was a thing I dreamed about for decades, and then finally really came true. And not only did it come true, but some of the most like successful films ever made. Yeah. So you did see it though, Devin. You did. You did. Oh see yeah. Endgame. Oh yeah. I I had to. Like that was something. You were just handed a ticket if you were that's standing right. around <laughs> in uh, when was that twenty nineteen or. 500 years ago whenever it was yeah and and i've kept up like part of why i haven't gotten into the dc universe and some of these other big budget things is because very early on for for no other reason beyond just it seemed like a good idea at the time i i don't go in for a lot of sequels like even something like john wick which i absolutely loved i've never seen the sequels just because like i said i have a growing list of stuff over the course of the last 150 years i would love to get to john wick too it's not in my top hundred to get to. And so I've had to kind of choose what I'm going to get myself invested in. And I did get myself invested in the Marvel universe. There's generally things that I can love about even some of the bad ones. I am at this point now that they're spreading into television and everything. It's simultaneously more exciting and less interest somehow. 
Um, because I, feel I, you. I understand. Yeah, I want to know how WandaVision does. I'm interested in WandaVision. It seems very interesting how they're going to do that. I'm sure there will be time travel involved in WandaVision because it just looks like from the commercials that they're at least time traveling through different uh, sitcom tropes. I have no invested interest in a Hawkeye series or any of that. So while I have made sure that I have been a part of every part of the MCU so far, I think I'm tapping out and I'm now switching over to, well, if it interests me, I'll check it out. And if it doesn't interest me, I don't care anymore. I think that's the healthier way to be about some of these series that are kind of expanding to a level. Look, they already wanted me to go and see three Marvel movies in the theater every year as I increasingly get to an age in which I'm lucky if I see four movies in the theater at all. So I don't know what that extra movie was going to be. Usually it's been a Star Wars movie lately, and I'm getting really sick of it, really tired of that as... (laughs) as kind of what cinema can be or what cinema is. But that being said, I have to give them credit where credit is due. It was highly enjoyable. I really love Avengers Endgame. Um, I think any movie that costs close to like four or $500 million has to, by its nature, be deprived of a rating star for me because no movie is worth the amount that would save a small country. Um, yeah. Like, do I love Avengers Endgame more than I love Zimbabwe? No, I'd rather have Zimbabwe. <laughs> <laughs> I please no mail from Zimbabwe. I, I don't know enough about you in reality to make that analogy, but uh, <laughs> but you get my point. I do think that it's theoretically overblown. you love Zimbabwe more. Yeah. So much money has been literally wasted on the Marvel universe that I do have a little bit of animosity. Um, but talking about it strictly artistically. Uh, they pulled it off. And I will say Captain America, based on the Rip Van Winkle structure, is a time travel story itself. Um, so the whole Captain America series is got some time travel, which is why it makes so much sense to me that his story, or at least the Chris Evans version of Captain America, the, the Steve version of Captain America, wraps up as a time travel wrap up, I think is perfect. Uh, for that character, I don't care what kind Same. of inconsistencies it creates in the actual universe, because you know what? None of them exist. So let's not worry about whether right. it can exist in that timeline. But uh, another series that I have also loved and has had a very fascinating evolution over time, <laughs> evolution pun not intended, but I wish I had made it intended, <laughs> uh, the, the evolution of the Planet of the Apes movies, which is also at least the first and the third uh, and elements of the second been a a time travel story. But in a weird way, because it does open up like what is obviously it's the end. Like what you really find out is the end of, of the first film where like, Oh, you're not on a different planet. You're just on earth. Yeah. Perfect Rod Serling ending. Rod Serling wrote the script and I know it's based on a book, but the book had a different ending. Yeah, it did. That's yes. That's what I've heard. I've still, I've heard the book is actually really great and I've always wanted to read it. Oh, I've um, read it like three times. It's, it's great science fiction. Rod Serling's version of this, and he's famously gone on note saying that he wrote like 30 or 40 versions of it before he finally gave it back to the studio and said, you're going to have to find somebody else. Uh, and that other person, I can't remember the name right now, but that other person contributed heavily to what we ended up seeing on the screen. Elements of Serling's version did follow through though like such as the ending but rod serling's version just like the book had them living in an actual civilization with cities and technology uh, and it was the other writer who made them more primitive and living in huts and so who knows what rod serling's movie really would have been like but his stamp is still all over this movie and it really does feel like an extended twilight zone absolutely charlton hessen basically saying like what what's been a minute for them has been a lifetime you know back on earth and it opens with the basically Charlton Heston literally saying like 
it basically gives away the ending like right at the beginning. And I didn't even realize that until recently. You were watching it like, oh yeah, the foreshadows it right now, literally the opening scene, but it's still a very it's one of the most memorable endings of all time. And it's it is technically, but again, space travel and the difference between you know traveling at light speed is that that is honestly the most real version of time travel we'll ever experience is what astronauts experience. But it is, yeah, it's it's it has to be discussed because it's like I said, it's you know a huge franchise, especially at the at the time, it was the biggest franchise. I mean, it was pre-Star Wars. I mean, this was pre-Star Wars. For for Planet of the Apes, there have been five original movies, uh, an original television series, an original cartoon, then the Tim Burton remake, followed by a rebooted trilogy that really stands on its own two legs without referencing the originals at all. In fact, the re- the Tim Burton remake is very far removed from anything that the originals did as well. Uh, and that's not to even mention all the the books, just like there've been a million and seven Star Trek books. Uh, there've been a million and seven different stories of Dr. Zaius and Cornelius and, and all of that. And none of those really reaching from the source novel, like those are reaching for the, the movies specifically. A lot of material has come from planet of the apes and it really was the Avengers of its time. Like that was the universe that people were following. And it, it had an interesting progression. Heston goes into the future to, to discover the planet of the apes. Uh, and the second one, another astronaut has been sent to to look for him and in part three after they destroy the planet of the apes some of the heroes from the first movie cornelius and zira are catapulted back in time in the same spaceship that charlton heston had uh back into the 70s so that you can see the honest uh progression of how uh earth became the planet of the apes which is a great conceit and it always surprises me that whenever they made another sequel they said well we didn't plan to do another sequel but it did so well and like how did that with the exception of maybe Not- the fifth one, uh, they <laughs> all seem to follow a progression that seems as if it was predestined. I think the third one's probably the most fun and the most. Uh, oh hell yeah! Yeah, it's like one and three. The- I I can live yep. without some of the other ones, but one and yeah. three are. But the Planet Apes is fine. I agree a hundred percent, especially having just even. I'm in the middle of rewatching all five of the originals, but yeah, the second one's fine. It's not. You know, I don't dislike it, but and four is and fucking rough, man. You're gonna enjoy getting into the conquest <laughs> well, I've, again i i don't know if you showed it to me or casey showed it to me but i've i've i know i've seen all the first four i don't remember if i've seen the fifth one the original fifth one it's been a long ass time you'll like the um, fifth one because paul williams is one of the uh ring that's that's yes <laughs> yeah that's i know it's funny though because he looks so much like dr Z- like dr zayas looks like paul like i think that if i had i think somebody was watching that being like it just looks like Paul Williams in monkey makeup. <laughs> uh, I say that lovingly. I love uh, Paul Williams. I love him to death. I feel like we can't talk about the movie. We can't talk about time travel without mentioning the movie Antiviral. But you also can't talk about Antiviral without. Anyways, let's. I'll just say it's. You know, I'm just want to mention that uh, two movies that I do want to talk about real quick because they're indie movies, like more independent films that sort of took on the concept of time travel. One is a Spanish film called Time Crimes. Did you have? Did you have you ended up watching it, Devin? I started watching it based on your recommendation. I really planned to watch it uh, in between the last episode and this, but I kept on getting really engrossed in this new TV show called Insurrection that's been on TV the last couple of days. <laughs> I don't know if you saw any of that. Um, and so it, it kind of distracted me from like when it came time to watch a movie, I started watching time crimes and I really appreciated where it was going and I will return to it. But at a certain point I just needed to relax and I put on a movie I got for my birthday, which is the last starfighter. It has nothing to do with time travel, uh, but really hit the spot no, in terms of being, so. 
being an escape from <laughs> it's basically using time travel to sort of tell a thriller it's an interesting movie is it a brilliant perfect movie no it's a it's an indie movie but it just go some of it you go oh this is where going where i think it is there are a few surprises along the way which is sort of like oh that's unexpected but it's definitely an interesting little movie i remember when it came out i didn't see it right away but i heard all these great things about it so when i finally saw it i was like yeah that was good i think again i think maybe it was like overhyped to me a little bit because we were saying it was so brilliant and i was like yeah it was good i, I don't know if i think it's the best movie made but it's definitely a very unique time travel movie it's definitely doing something different from others yeah yeah uh yeah, there's been a couple of names tied to that by the way um for an american remake there's uh, been talking about remakes since 2012 so i don't know yeah i i don't i don't think anything is actively on the uh fire for it right now but at various points uh david cronenberg wanted to do a remake of time crimes and Tom Cruise really wants to play the lead role for whoever ends up doing time crimes. Which, uh, if you've never seen the movie and you know the original Spanish actor, could not be more different from fucking Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> and, and that actor also wrote and directed the movie. The other one I have to talk about, because it's probably the single most pure, quote unquote, time travel movie. It's the movie that you'll hear like certain amount of like, whether they're science nerds or certain segment of film fans, you have to talk about the movie Primer. I saw that in the theater because primer makes fucking 12 monkeys seem like a Mr. Bean sketch. Like it's seriously, <laughs> it's so hard to fucking actually understand what's going on. You need like, you need to basically watch it like six times and write everything down, but it's a very complicated movie, but it is a lot of people posit like the single most realistic concept of what time travel could be like how it would work. And, and how it would be and invented you know, in somebody's garage. Like it, this exactly no corporation is going to put up the money to like invent time travel. There's no, there's no yeah. gain in it. And so many well, and the fact that, moral and, it, and ethical pitfalls that are tied into yeah. it. When, and if time travel is ever invented, I guarantee you the first time machine is going to come from a garage. And that's yeah. and the thing, the, in the movie. It's not, they're not even trying to invent time travel. They're trying to like find a way to eliminate like mass or weight or something for basically to make, you know, shipping cheaper. And then they end up finding out that they have time travel as like a side effect. The thing that I think is really interesting though, is like the limitations of time travel. The fact that they need this box and you, they can only go, you can't go to into like 300 years of past because the box wasn't invented then. So you can, the earliest you can travel back is to the first day the box was invented, but it's how they use it. And, and then the whole concept of us creating like the safety, like, yeah, they have a, a safety box built somewhere else. Yeah. In case the one the guy, first one, yeah. The thing is, it's one of those movies, it's it's smart and it's very interesting. It's one of those movies I feel like where sometimes the conceit or the, are the characters that interesting? I do feel like the writer and director made a point of making kind of three-dimensional characters, very flawed characters. And obviously there's some ethical questions in the movie. Even on a second viewing, you're like, wait, what? What did that have to do with this? And what? why Why did this happen? <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things, it's like, it's not for casual film fans, but if you're talking about time travel films, you have to talk about it because... I mean, it's literally like the time travel for a lot of people. It's considered like the best time travel movie just because of the complications of time travel yeah. and creating paradoxes and stuff. So it, it earns that reputation pretty honestly too. the guy who uh, wrote it and directed it and plays the, the main guy uh, or what, yeah. one of the two main guys, it's re it really is a, a two fister kind of movie. He actually does have like a background in this kind of science and he had never seen science in general treated as science on screen. It actually, in a weird way, it works in the favor of making this a great movie, but it actually works against making it a memorable movie because the the dialogue is so much in the jargon of not only the terms that's, that home scientists would use, 
but just even kind of like the cadence and the humor and like everything is kind of based on these guys who in real life are are not known for their pithy uh, comments and things. Uh, and so it, what, what you end up with is a lot of very technically heavy dialogue that it does not lend itself to get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty apes or uh, double dumbass to you or where we're going. We don't need roads. Exactly. <laughs> the, the things that the time travelers say in other movies that everybody quotes primer by its own nature, cannot have dialogue like that. It has to be clinical dialogue. So there's nothing for a regular audience to grab onto. But if you're an indie fan, uh, this is a fantastic movie and it's an inspiration to anybody who's ever wanted to make a movie because the budget was about $10,000. And the idea that not only could you make a sci-fi movie or make a movie for $10,000, but make a sci-fi movie. And on top of that, make it a time travel sci-fi movie. It's just insane. And that just on achievement level alone, this movie is notable and should always be well said remembered. Even if you're shooting with your iPhone, if you're making something that you expect to play in the theaters, it's going to cost more than $10,000. So yeah, very inspired by that. And I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't sure if we were going to get a chance to even talk about Primer because it's such a niche fan base. Uh, But I saw that in New York with my dad. My dad and I both wanted to go see it because we wanted to see how this $10,000 was spent. And I think it was spent (laughs) very wisely. Uh, And he enjoyed it as well. Uh, Another kind of oddball kind of one that i i'm going to bring this up uh, you you can bring up whatever you want i'm going to make this my last uh no i'm done you can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you end it. there's a movie that i had seen a long time ago and then i watched i rewatched it again in the process of of researching this and realized just what a technical feat it was and it's a movie that gets no real respect in cinematic circles although it does in literature circles and that is Slaughterhouse Five, based on Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s novel Slaughterhouse Five, um, which I just have to say, great title for a book, great title for a movie coming out when it came out. That title has aged worse than it ever could have imagined. Uh, because if you tell people nowadays you should see Slaughterhouse Five, not only are they going to think you're talking about a slasher movie, they're going to think you're talking about like the uh, well-worn fifth, fifth entry uh, of <laughs> a slasher series. So yeah, very unfortunately t- titled with 2020 hindsight, uh, Slaughterhouse Five actually refers to the POW camp that the main character is in for portions of the movie, uh, which was inspired by Kurt Vonnegut's actual experiences in a POW camp when he was captured at the Battle of the Bulge. And as a prisoner in a POW camp, he also experienced firsthand the horrors of the bombing of Dresden. Uh, which also becomes a part of this story. The reason why it's a time travel story is because the main character in Slaughterhouse Five is living his life out of order. Uh, they can, they allude at some points there may be trauma that he experienced, like like blunt force trauma when he gets injured at a certain point that maybe caused this. There's also ways that you could imagine it was created extraterrestrially, but somehow this guy is living his life in different sections at different times and at one moment he's in the pow camp and then inexplicably uh he's living for a period uh later in his life when he's married with a with children and then suddenly he's back as a child with his you know in in his hometown the way that it switches back and forth to tell the full story of one man and by the end this is not really a spoiler alert because 
the book's been around forever. And honestly, most people know this, but in the end, you find out that uh, this character gets abducted by aliens and lives on basically an interplanetary zoo as an example of the human species, along with Valerie Perrine of uh, Superman and Lenny fame, who is a playboy centerfold in the movie that, uh, and, and actress uh, who the character has fantasized about in his life on earth. And now is suddenly his companion in, on this alien planet, living his life in different <laughs> stages. So there's no time travel in the sense that there's no time machine. And I think that anybody who's interested in screenwriting and in particular film editing, this should be like required watching. For anybody out there, this was that came out in the 70s. It was directed by George Roy Hill. Doesn't really have a star-studded cast. It really exists kind of in its own universe. Uh, but I, I would be letting myself down if I didn't mention Slaughterhouse Five in this conversation because I really don't know where else it's going to fit in the nature of cinema to begin with, outside of a time travel movie and or an uh, alien abduction film. Yeah, uh, because I mean, he's they're not malicious aliens. He's not being tortured by the aliens. He's not being probed. Uh, in fact, like no probing. it seems like he can ask for whatever he wants. And as long as what he wants isn't to be let out of his cage, kind of gets it. So he becomes quite comfortable living that life, which draws parallels to how he had to live as a, as a POW for a number of years. Uh, you can tell it's a very personal story for Vonnegut. And Vonnegut, who was cantankerous, to put it nicely, um, and for some reason, his only film appearance was in Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, which is insane. <laughs> I always, Growing up, I thought that was an actor playing Kurt Vonnegut until I realized, no, that's really Kurt Vonnegut, who's in this fucking Rodney Dangerfield movie. Weird as fuck, but, right. but genius. But he has uh, gone on record as saying that this is the only adaptation of his work that he endorses. He believed that this film captured the purpose of the novel. And considering how personal this novel is to him, uh, I would say that that's saying something. Isn't there in development or weren't they talking about making a new adaptation? I thought they'd be stupid not to be, I don't know if they are, uh, but this would be I read that a long time ago. Someone would be stupid to not try to turn this into a, a Netflix or a Hulu series. As I would say, like a streaming original. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But have you, well, have you ever seen the film? No, I know the, the the book really well uh i have multiple friends who that's their favorite book of all time so i might have I to didn't get know you a copy a... of this movie because i want your opinion on it it's because you and i both love 70s movies and it's so 70s but at the same time it is so outside of anything else so uh, and i i love that that kind of uniqueness you know it's it's definitely not cookie cutter well i will say though like it's that's an interesting one to end it on because um you know it's definitely the uh, odder end of, uh, you know, a time travel movie. The thing is, like, once again, when we set out to record these episodes, like, you never realize how many, first of all, how many films there are in the world, how many films have been made, but how many really interesting films have been made and how many there actually are worth any of the movies, I feel like pretty much we could have talked about tonight. We could have talked about for two hours just on the single movie. Yeah, And I feel like, if anything, like, as much as I feel like we, you know, when we talk about these things, I'm trying to get, I'm sure you, you have the same, goal to get people excited about movies that you've watched and that you you know you want to see expand people's horizons if maybe they haven't seen the movie but every one of these episodes i always learn something about a film um whether it's a film i've you know learned a tidbit or a history about a film i've never i've seen that i'm a fan of or like in this case uh getting excited about a movie i i haven't seen in this case an adaptation of a you know a classic uh american novel so i'm excited and uh i will say if you're listening to this if we met i'm, I'm sure we missed 
some of your favorite uh, science fiction time travel films. Sorry, fans uh, of Hot Tub Time Machine. You know <laughs> exactly. I was gonna say I almost, I almost. There was a few I almost threw under the bus, but I was like, let's keep it positive. But yeah, I mean, hopefully, like you enjoyed this episode. But again, if you if you feel like we missed any, let us know. Like, and hey, look, if you're a fan of the Fountain, that's fine. You can be a fan. Uh, but if you <laughs> if you are a fan, if, you, if I'm wrong, why don't you tell? Leave us a comment on our social media, Devin. Where where are where is our social media? Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter for as long as those things exist. Uh, <laughs> uh, search Den of Sin podcast and you'll find us. That's Sin C I N as in cinema. Uh, we're also on Instagram uh, under the same thing, Den of Sin. Um, but we love you and we want you to subscribe and like us and comment. And uh, even more than that, we want you to stay safe and healthy and make sure that you're taking precautions as we try to make 2021 a better year, uh, whatever that means for you. Be safe and let's all try to love each other and be understanding of each other and have a, a, a safe, prosperous, prosperous, prosperous. That's the right word. Prosperous 2020. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Talk to y'all later. Bye. Bye.